Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Sybil. And I'm Ryan. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedy seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're continuing our high school movie series with a Netflix rom-com based on a YA novel. We'll discuss representation in the teen movie genre and talk about what's worth celebrating and where there's room to grow. And we'll dig into the fake dating trope and explore the work of writer Jenny Han as we discuss her first streaming success to all the boys I've loved before. Sybil, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I'm I'm hearing that you're now going to be a part-time um, Los Angeles dweller again. Is that right? I mean, I have, and I've just been couch surfing for the last, like, you know, uh, what, I'm going to say two years, but uh, I have a new location. I, if people don't know, this is the first time you're listening. I'm an esthetician and I own a small, like, sp- like skincare studio. And I signed a lease for that for three years in LA. And then the apartment above it became available. So it just seemed like a win-win to accept it. It's the tiniest studio ever. It's 289 square feet. So if you don't know how small that is, it's like the size of a small kitchen, but, (laughs) but it stops people from walking above me and I can easily like drop stuff there. I can sleep there. I can shower. So it's really great. Well, I'm very happy for you, and I hope that the cats will also uh, enjoy this space. (laughs) So, I mean, my cats are my cats. I will say my my old man, Sage, who's about to have his 20th birthday, has been having, like, a little bit of health issues, but he seems to be bouncing back, so fingers crossed. Well, best of luck to Sage on his upcoming birthday. Very good. So, I'm really excited today, Uh, Sybil. We're going to have a new guest on the show. Ryan Pack from the Soundtrack Your Life podcast. Uh, I have previously been on Ryan's show. I was talking about the movie Flashdance, and I had a great time. We had a really interesting discussion. And Soundtrack Your Life is a podcast about soundtracks and why they're important to us. So each episode of the podcast has a really unique character, depending on like why the guest responds to that soundtrack. Sometimes it's musically, sometimes it's cinematically, and sometimes it's more personally. And Ryan and his co-hosts and guests have covered a wide variety of movie soundtracks. And our listeners should know they've also covered rom-coms like Dirty Dancing, Singles, and Music and Lyrics. Ryan himself is a musician with a degree in film studies, so this podcast is a perfect intersection of his main passions. And I'm so excited to have him on today. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on Every Rom-Com. I'm very happy to be here. So Ryan, I've got so many questions for you. So you said that your podcast was born from a love of both music and film, but I'm wondering like what led you to go to the next level and not just be passionate about those things, but actually put a podcast together. Cause as we know here, it is so much work. Yeah. So the story is that um, I kind of, I play music with a couple of friends and we were going to record some, we were going to record some songs and try to self-release it. And I thought like a good way to maybe promote that was to start a podcast where, you know, on 
different episodes, I could, you know, play a snippet of what we were working on or just to kind of mention to listeners that our music is available. Um, but the pandemic hit, so we didn't have time to uh, record. And then I just decided to kind of go forward with the podcast anyway. So on the first couple of episodes, I'm actually talking to uh, one of my band members, Damon. And uh, it kind of just went from there. Nice. Okay, so it's interesting. So it started out as one thing and it kind of became its own thing, it sounds like. Yeah, it's kind of consumed my life in <laughs> a good, or good and bad way. Yeah, I identify with that quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so as to your music, like what um, what type of instrument do you play or like what kind of music do you make? Uh, so I play guitar um, and I can play piano as well. But the band, I just mostly play uh, guitar and do vocals. Nice. And I guess you would uh, call our music like like 90s influenced indie rock. Cool. Yeah, I can get behind that. Nice. And yeah. And do you have a page up for that as well as for the podcast then like that you can tell us about? Uh, we're working on it. When we have some music up, we'll probably create like a SoundCloud or something where people can check it out. Okay, awesome. Cool. What? I will look yeah. forward to I will look forward to seeing that when it when it arises. So um as to soundtrack your life, um you have two co-hosts and you have women co-hosts, which is kind of unique. Um how did they become involved in the project? So I've known uh Brandis and Nicole for over 10 years now. So we used to work together at an advertising agency and for some reason we just became really good friends. And uh when I started this project, Brandis was kind of like my sounding board for it. And then knowing that I didn't want to kind of solo host everything, um, I had the idea of bringing Nicole into the fold at some point. And then I had Brandis as a guest and she actually had a really good time. So it ended up being all three of us. Nice. So what are some of like your favorite episodes of Soundtrack Your Life? I know it's hard to pick, but do you have a couple that like just really stand out to you or that you learned something really fascinating about the soundtrack from? Yeah, we've had a really, we've had the great opportunity to interview some people who've actually worked on soundtrack. So it's been nice to get kind of a peek behind the curtain. So we've had a couple composers and um, a couple of people who have had, you know, their band on different soundtracks. So it's been really cool. Like I learned that uh, one of our guests, he was in charge of arranging the acapella afternoon delight scene in Anchorman. <laughs> nice. And do you have any personal favorite soundtracks? Um, you know, like the single soundtrack is probably one of the first soundtracks that, you know, I... I knew about and listened to over and over again. So that's a big one for me. You know, Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. You know, that is not just one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, but one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah, so much that you kind of forget that it's a soundtrack right yeah, on. Yeah, I constantly forget it's a soundtrack. People will be like, what's your favorite soundtrack? And I'll be like, oh, singles. And then I'll be like, oh, wait, Purple Rain. Yeah, totally. And because uh, this is a rom-com podcast, uh, do you, like we always ask our guests, do you have any favorite rom-coms? And, and if you want to also talk about rom-com soundtracks, that would be interesting. I mean, obviously, singles being one. Right. So singles, I feel like it's almost cheating. <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's just so loaded with, with great music. And it's about the Seattle music scene as much as it is about a romance. 
Like, I, I kind of don't feel like it's a traditional rom-com, though it is Cameron Crowe, who's very good at it. I, I really like the music from music and lyrics. Like, I'm a sucker for a good fake music artist, <laughs> you know, and the songs in that movie, like Pop Goes My Heart, are yeah. just so fun. Yeah. I don't know if it's my favorite rom-com, but I, I think soundtrack-wise, it's a lot of fun. You know, so I know that a lot of rom-coms kind of go by a formula, so yeah. I like the ones where it's well-directed, where even though you can kind of predict what's going to happen, like the ride is just so enjoyable that it doesn't really matter. Sure, sure. So I, you know, at least recently I thought uh, Crazy Rich Asians was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a fun one. I like the book it's based on, too. So just like today, we've got a rom-com based on a book, which I think can be very good sometimes. Yeah, and I, I think I prefer the action comedy rom-com if it's available. Like, True Lies is kind of an action comedy rom-com. I think I think it, you could argue it veers into the territory, yeah. Like, I, I love those two. Like, Romancing the Stone is, like, a huge favorite of mine, for example. So, yeah. Although they can also be really bad. I was talking about Ghosted over on a Piecing It Together pod this year. And like, no. <laughs> yeah. I could tell I from the trailer that, that was not going to be a good one. <laughs> so, so, Ryan, like, uh, where can people find your podcast to, like, hear about all these interesting soundtracks that you've covered? So they should be available on pretty much any major podcast platform, or you can go to www.soundtrackyourlife.net if you just want to go to our website and find it there. Yeah, and I really recommend checking out your podcast. Like, I think you've had so many interesting discussions, and you've covered such a wide variety of movies. And like, especially I know there's a ton of people out there who are interested in both music and movies. So if that's your jam, like there's a good place for, for you to go. So check him out. So before we get started today, a few notes. First, as usual, there will be a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoilers are about to start. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And we really do, you know, welcome interaction on those platforms, like especially on Twitter. You could definitely have a conversation with yours truly. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, if you like what we're doing at Every Romcom, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com slash everyromcom. All donations are used towards producing and hosting the podcast only. Uh, we'll put a link to our Buy Me a Coffee page in the show notes. And thank you in advance to anyone who's willing to help out. And now we're going to listen to the trailer for To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Junior year. I can hardly believe it. Thanks, Dad. Well, we need to talk about your sexual health. No, no, please no. I want you to be safe. Dad, why are you giving me these? Don't forget to have fun. Yes, well, I have a lot of rubbers for that, specifically. I think you should branch out, make some new friends. Nope. You never know what could happen. That's what I'm afraid of. My letters are my most secret possessions. I write them when I have a crush so intense, I don't know what else to do. There are five total. Peter, the most popular guy in school. Kenny from camp. 
Lucas from Homecoming, John Ambrose from Model UN, and Josh, but he's my sister's boyfriend. What are you doing? Nothing. Nobody else knows about them. Hey, can I talk to you? I, I really appreciate it, but it's never gonna happen. I'm sorry, what? I think it's really cool that you think I have golden specks in my eyes. Oh my god. It's Josh. Oh my god. Oh, okay. The letters are out. Women. Tell me about it. Here's the thing. I had to make it look like I liked you so somebody else wouldn't think I liked them. What if we let people think that we were actually together? Let's do this. I've never seen you so happy. Did you mean what you wrote in the letter? I'm lying to every single person in my life. Just don't hide yourself, okay, honey? You can't just sit up in your room writing love letters. You gotta tell people how you feel when you feel it. All right, that was our trailer for To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Any comments on our trailer or? I actually love that trailer and it's good to listen to as well. Literally hits all the points of the of like the movie where I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Cool. Yeah, I think Netflix does a decent job with their trailers for sure. Yeah, it's an effective trailer. I just think that starting off with that uh, <laughs> sex joke kind of makes you think the humor of the movie might be a little bit different but um, yeah you know i i, th- I actually i felt the same thing about that i felt like it was like some kind of weird clickbait almost but it is like the literally the in my opinion the funniest line it okay. is the funniest in my opinion so i understood why somebody wanted to put it in there her delivery of that is brilliant where she's like i have all the rubbers yeah she doesn't call them condoms she calls them rubbers it's hysterical <laughs> Maybe they were also trying to put John Corbett out front to lure in the adults. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I like, was very happy to see him in this movie. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's a good guy, I think. All right. So some basic information about To All the Boys I've Loved Before. It came out on August 17th, 2018, which I realized in the process of doing research was two days after the premiere of Crazy Rich Asians. So like these were both like uh, sort of big wins for representation that year. And they both came out within like two days of each other, which is kind of wild. It was directed by Susan Johnson. It was written by Sofia Alvarez based on the book by Jenny Han. And it stars Lana Condor, Noah Centineo, Janelle Parrish, Anna Cathcart, John Corbett, and Israel Broussard. And the basic premise of this is that your main character, Laura Jean, is a very romantic teenage girl. She lives in her head, right? She's all fantasies. But instead of meeting boys, she spends her time reading romance novels, hanging out with her sister, baking, and occasionally writing love letters that she's never going to send to crushes. And this includes her older sister, Margot's boyfriend, Josh. That becomes very important as we continue. Before going away to Scotland for college, Margot breaks up with Josh, who is also, they're like also close friends. Um, And he's also a close friend with Laura Jean and the whole family because he's been like their next door neighbor. At around the same time, Laura Jean's younger sister, Kitty, sends out Laura Jean's love letters, including a letter she wrote to Josh. Laura Jean is then confronted at school by other recipients of her letters, including Peter Kavinsky, a popular guy who's been dating Laura Jean's ex-friend Jen, though Jen recently broke up with him. If you're having trouble staying staying with it, <laughs> this is how it is, okay? This is like this is like high school guys, okay? Yeah. 
as Peter is telling Laura Jean, he's, I feel like we should have like a diagram. I know. No, it totally, it seems like this really simple movie. And then you try to figure out the, like break down the plot and you're like, whoa, there's a lot of things going on here. Oh my gosh. Okay. As Peter is telling Laura Jean, he's flattered, but he's not, it's never going to happen between them. Laura Jean sees Josh approaching and in a panic decides to kiss Peter. For obvious reasons, right? That's like what your choice is. <laughs> Lord Jean and Peter make a deal to pretend to date each other in order for in order to make Jen jealous and to so, show Josh that Laura Jean isn't interested in him romantically anymore. Yeah, isn't it crazy? Like seriously, like this this movie doesn't feel that complicated, but like all of this happens, I think, within like 15, 20 minutes of the movie it starting. Is. Like, it and it's like, whoa, this is like some like, yeah, Russian novel stuff going on like, here. Every rom com trope right here now all together at once okay so some interesting facts about the movie so to all the boys i've loved before was based on the ya novel of the same name by jenny han which came out in 2014 and within weeks of publication of that novel the movie rights had been purchased and we'll tell you a little bit more about jenny han uh, later here when we talk about cast and crew because it's pretty evident why the rights were purchased she was already quite successful So To All the Boys, the novel spent 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in the young adult fiction section, and it has been published in 30 languages. The love letters in To All the Boys were inspired by author Jenny Han's real-life habit of writing love letters that she never sent and hiding them in a hat box. Han told the LA Times that she encountered resistance around casting an Asian actress as Lara Jean. She said, quote, There were so many times when I was asked about casting, why does she have to be Asian if there's nothing in there about her being Asian? End quote. Which, first of all, like, there is stuff in there, especially when you get into the second and third novels, so it doesn't make any sense. But, yeah. However, both Han and director Susan Johnson were advocates for casting an Asian-American actress as Laura Jean. Actress Lana Condor said it was important for her to represent other Asian-American girls since she saw so little of herself on screen growing up. She told Variety, quote, it got to the point where there was so little representation. I just thought it was normal. My whole reason for doing this is so girls who look like me feel seen, end quote. And interestingly, the two All the Boys books were set in Virginia, but the movie is set in Portland, Oregon. And much of it, of course, was filmed in Vancouver, BC, uh, where all movies are filmed, right? (laughs) Many of them, yes. Yeah. And scenes at the high school were filmed at the Point Grey Secondary School in Vancouver, BC, if anyone's interested in the movie High School. So two more movies based on the book's sequels were released on Netflix, To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You in 2020, and To All the Boys, Always and Forever in 2021. Most of the original cast returned for the sequels, and new cast members were introduced. And excitingly, and Sybil's the first one who told me about this, actually, Jenny Han has been working as a creator and co-showrunner on the Netflix original spin-off series, XO Kitty, which features the youngest Song Covey sister, Kitty, studying in Korea, and the plot revolves around her romantic drama and her discovery of aspects of her mom's past. So I did actually watch that, Sybil, too. I know you said, I really like XO Kitty. Like, it's of all of them, it's probably my favorite. And I think it's just... Yeah, I think it's also because it is, you said as somebody who's, you know, lived in Korea, that it was very like not, it was like fantasy Korea. Yeah. And that, 100% <laughs> true. that whole thing is so fantasy. 
And I really enjoyed that. It was like watching Bridgerton. You know, it's just all very fantasy. Nice. Well, I think you're going to tell us a little bit more about it later in the episode, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) So let's talk about our kind of a general opinion of the movie. And like, so when did you see it? What did you think at the time? Has it been a rewatch for you? And what do you think of it now? So anyone can start. So I watched it for the first time this week. I believe my wife watched it uh, shortly after it came out, but she likes to watch these movies without me because she thinks I hate all romantic comedies. Well, um, did you have any like visceral thoughts about it when you first watched it? I thought it was like a fun, breezy, you know, 90 minutes of movie. Yeah, that's I I watched it when it first came out as well, um, just because, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I watched something that was representing kind of like romance and I love the romantic genre. And although I tried to read the book when it first came out, it was not for me. It was, it was too, it was far too frivolous. Oh, I like the books better. Okay. We're going to have a, yeah. Okay. Keep going. Keep yeah. Going. Um, and I will say that I enjoyed the TV show. Like I enjoyed the TV show, but it did not make me want to watch the subsequent subsequent ones. Hmm. So you watched the first movie. You haven't watched the sequels. No, but I watched XO Kitty and loved it. Interesting. That is a very strange journey with this movie. And have you watched All the Boys I've Loved Before, like, again since seeing it? Like, well, well obviously yeah, for the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, I watched it here so I could wa- I could do the podcast about it with you. Okay, yeah. Me, like, this has actually been kind of one of those movies I've gone back to. So I watched All the Boys when it first came out. I don't ever really remember why. I think I was just watching pretty much any teen rom-com they put on to Netflix at the time. And this one, and as a result, this one really stood out because there are some not great teen rom-coms on Netflix, to be honest. There's a lot of their output is not fantastic, but this one really stood out to me. I felt like it, I don't know, is it actually only 90 minutes? Because it feels like it's a little longer and lets things breathe, breathe a little bit more. You know, like, I don't feel that way about the sequels, but I think the first movie lets some of the dramatic scenes and conversations breathe a little bit so that you feel like they're natural and like, I, I love the I love the two main actors in this, Lana Condor and Noah Centineo. I think they do a great job and have great chemistry. I I love like the heart behind it. And I actually like did go and read the books then for this podcast episode. I decided to read all three of them. And I've seen the other two movies as well. And I actually ended up liking the books better in certain ways. Like I think they get pretty deep as they go. Um, and I think like though the first movie I think does the best job representing the books. And the subsequent two movies, I think Netflix figured out what they thought worked about the first movie and what was driving views. And then they tried to just make the second two movies as much of that as possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like somebody went in there and tried to like algorithm science it to like make every single second of the movie, like just like keep people's attention rather than realizing that sometimes in a movie you need downtime, you need slow periods, you need like awkwardness a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I did just check. It's an hour and 39 minute runtime. Okay. Hour and 30. So yeah, roughly that. So yeah, but yeah, but it, it feels like there's depth to it to me. So it's interesting. Like both of you are kind of like breezy or like, like not so much. And I do, I do feel like a heart to it. And it could be also though, that now I've read the book. So that kind of deepened my appreciation of what's going on in this girl's head. Like she's a very de- different teenager than I was. She's much more wholesome <laughs> than I was, but I kind of like it. I kind of like that there's a different kind of teenager being represented and she doesn't, isn't expected to change either, you know? Right. Right. 
Any other any other initial thoughts or general opinion of the movie? I, I really like the color scheme of it. I think it's really beautifully shot. And it feels very much like if you've seen the like book cover, it feel it felt very much like that. It's like I felt like it was encapsulating, it did a really good job encapsulating how I felt the book would be as somebody who has who couldn't get through the book. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. Oh well. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I think the cinema the cinematography is great and the set designs are great. Like her I remember her bedroom looked really cool uh, for someone who's not very cool. (laughs) They never said she wasn't cool. She's just not like usual cool. She's like cool in her head, man. Yeah, for me, it's like this. It's interesting because I really like the the set design and the colors and everything. But like, in a way, it's also the weakness for me, like especially having gone back to look at some of the John Hughes films. It's remarkable how realistic and lived in people's houses look and people's costuming looks. And, and like, that was, I think, because we were coming out of the seventies when like cinema was supposed to be kind of realistic and gritty looking. Right. And now in in this age, it's like, everything's very polished. Like everything's Instagram, everything's like put together and curated. Yeah. And, and then that, so it's like, on one hand, it's really pretty to look at and fun, but on the other hand, it's like, I feel like I'm missing a certain level of authenticity. And so if that's not brought forth from then the dialogue, then it all falls apart at a certain point for me. And that's what this, the second two movies were starting to head towards more. They're like, Oh, well they like the baking scene in the first movie. We're going to have twice the baking scenes. <laughs> so. Yeah. So. I, so, so my one qualm with the set design is I wish that in the, uh, Covey house I wish there were some sort of accents some details in there that reflected that their their mom was Korean mm, mm-hmm. like I feel like there could have just been like you know a pillow or something on a couch that could have shown um, a little bit about some sort of cultural thing you know um, yeah, good point like I didn't I don't I don't need like flashbacks in this movie of like how their mom was but I feel like their mom is very much a blank slate and maybe because I haven't seen the other movies or read the books, maybe that's uh, intentional, but I felt like that the mom is kind of just a plot device in this movie. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. in the second movie, they definitely like, they're at least wearing humbulk at one point and they visit some of the Korean in-laws or family, but they, even then they don't dwell on it a super amount, but like there's a little more of that brought in, but yeah, the house itself is very bland in a lot of ways, like bland upper middle class, whatever it's also far too clean like in reality that house does not have enough clutter sitting around (laughs) yeah so let's move on now to the cast and crew and i'm going to talk about jenny han who is the writer of the original books and the executive producer of the movie and yeah there's so many people i wanted to talk about for this particular movie because it has a woman director a woman screenwriter but jenny han's really like the heart and soul behind the whole series so i thought it was important to put her front and center here So she was born in 1980 in Richmond, Virginia, to Korean immigrant parents. She went to school to study creative writing, and she was in graduate school when she found out that her first book, Suge, a children's coming-of-age story, was being published. The book Suge was released in 2006, followed by The Summer I Turned Pretty in 2009, and its sequels in 2010 and 2011. Before writing the To All the Boys books, Han also wrote another kid's book, Clara Lee and the Apple Pie Dream, as well as being a co-writer for another YA trilogy, the Burn for Burn series. To All the Boys I've Loved Before was published in 2014, followed by its sequels, P.S. I Still Love You in 2015, and Always and Forever, Laura Jean in 2017. 
And then her first IMDb credit was for being the author of To All the Boys and for serving as an executive producer on the film. So that this is her entry point into um, media production. And as we will find out, it is not her closing point. So in addition to this movie, she also received writing and producing credits on the sequels to, to All the Boys. And then in 2022, Han signed a film and TV deal with Amazon and formed her own production company, Jenny Kissed Me. And as part of that deal, Han created and is a co-showrunner and writer on the Amazon TV series based on her books in the The Summer I Turned Pretty series. And that show has just debuted its second season just now. Um, Han is super go good. Ahead. Go ahead. Super, Sorry. It's super good, by the way. It's super good. Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't. I, I honestly, I couldn't get into the um, the initial series, but I didn't try too hard. It's mostly because I, I prefer to watch movies because they're more they're shorter units. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? Yeah, TV shows such a huge commitment, but I know you're a TV woman. So. I am a TV woman. It's yeah. true. So Han is also the creator and co-showrunner of the To All the Boys spinoff show, Exo Kitty. And it is her first project not based on an existing book. And it will also be getting a second season. And when I say I'm not a TV person, I was sucked into Exo Kitty. Even when I was sitting there at times being like, well, this is kind of dumb. And this is not how Korea works. I didn't care. I was like, I have to watch more. I have to keep going. It really sucked me in. And Han has had small cameo roles in the to all the boys movies, as well as in Exo Kitty. So I believe in this one, she's a teacher in the flashback scene where there's a dance. If you if you look carefully. Yeah. And if you if you keep looking for her, she's like Hitchcock. She's showing up. I just wanted to point out that uh, Jenny Han being from Virginia is not like a random thing. Like Virginia has a pretty big Korean-American population. Yeah. David Chang is also from Virginia, the celebrity chef. But a lot of uh, Koreans immigrate to like the D.C., Virginia, Maryland uh, area. Yeah, I think I linked, um, if it's not here, I'll try to put it in the show notes. I think I had a Korea Times article, actually, where she talked a little bit about growing up in Virginia among the Korean community there. So, yeah, she really like, like, as opposed to the character in the movie who doesn't seem to have a lot of like contact with the Korean community in her daily life, she really did growing up. So kind of a different experience. All right. So let's move on to Lana Condor. Uh, She was born in Vietnam, lived in an orphanage for a few months until she was adopted by parents from the U.S. in 1997. Condor has a brother who was adopted from the same orphanage who is just a few months older. She studied ballet as a child and performed with the Los Angeles Ballet. She also studied acting and chose to pursue acting instead of going to college. Her first film credit was as Jubilee in 2016 X-Men Apocalypse. She had two more acting credits before her breakout role as Lara Jean in To All the Boys I've Loved Before. She also went on to appear in To All the Boys sequels in 2020 and 2021. She's since appeared in several movies, uh, Alita, Battle Angel, and Summer Summer Night in 2019, and Moonshot in 2022. She's so good at Moonshot. Okay. And she's appeared in TV shows including Deadly Class and Boo Bitch. Such a good show, by the way. If you haven't seen Boo Bitch, oh, please yeah? go. So oh, good. okay. She's also done some voice work for the TV shows Zarela Kuma and Karu and Bojack Horseman. Recently, in 2023, she provided the voice for Ruby Gilman in Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken. Connor also has several projects in the work, the movies Worth the Wait, Valiant One, and Coyote vs. Acme. You know, that's going to be hysterical, right? Are in post-production. She's also in pre-production on two horror thriller movies, Ballerina Overdrive and 
a reality dating show horror movie called The One. Okay, and like I don't know what's going to happen to these projects because of the strikes, but like I hope that yeah, somehow, nothing's, good, nothing's but, coming out. But I hope yeah. that somehow this The One survives, like and comes out on the other side sometime because like it has such a good looking cast, like Nicholas Holtz in it too, and like oh. I'm just like obsessed with the concept of a reality horror show or a reality dating show horror movie. I mean, come on, that yeah. sounds amazing, right? And Nicholas Holtz is a genius. Um, I mean, nothing's. I mean, honestly, like we're, we're we've we've known we're going to be in it for a while, so. Yeah. Yeah. Like 2027 is when anything's going to come back into production, probably. Yeah, but I'm for release. For release. For but release. I but, but I want this movie so bad, so hopefully it'll survive the wreckage at some point. And I'm I'm totally in support of the strike, by the way. So just I'll just put that out there right now. But but I but I, I know how these things happen, and sometimes stuff gets lost. And yeah, a lot of things get lost, so you never know. You know, people get other things they're doing. All right, Condor has also begun producing some of her own projects, starting with Boo Bitch in 2022. And I'm going to talk about the minor Netflix uh, heartthrob. I mean, that's a good way to describe him, right? I agree. Noah Centineo. So yeah, Noah Centineo has really kind of become the Netflix go-to like teen rom-com dude, basically. So he was born in Miami, Florida in 1996, and he grew up in Florida. His first IMDb credit is for the movie The Gold Retrievers in 2009. And some of his other work before To All the Boys included the movies Turkles, SPF 18, and can't take it back. And he had guest roles on several TV shows and regular roles on the TV shows, The Fosters and Tagged. Since to all the boys I've loved before, he's appeared in both of the movie's sequels, as well as the movies, Sierra Burgess is a Loser, Swiped, The Perfect Date, the 2019 Charlie's Angels reboot, and Black Adam. And recently he's had a starring role in the Netflix series, The Recruit. And coming up, Centineo has several projects in various stages of production. Um, he's listed as having a main role in a film called The Diary, written and directed by Jackie Chan. But I could not find any news about that imminently coming out. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to see a movie written and directed by Jackie Chan. Me like, too. I'd watch that. Um, he's also in pre-production on a movie called The Greatest Disaster in Cinema History. In addition to acting, Centineo also has directing, writing, and production credits. He has one credit for directing a music video, Artie, Save Me Tonight, and he also appeared in that. He also has writing credits for the TV series Hashtag The Assignment, as well as a short film for Harper's Bazaar. And he's a producer on the shows Hashtag The Assignment and The Recruit, his music video, and the movies North Hollywood and the upcoming The Greatest Disaster in Cinema History. So, you know, I hope he kind of um, branches out beyond the Netflix uh, area. I do think he has a lot of charm. And here's something I, I need to put out there, okay? Yeah. So. I saw it somewhere where people say that he resembles Mark Ruffalo, both in his appearance and his voice. And after like hearing that, I couldn't unhear it. Like he really, his voice really does have a Ruffalo-esque kind of thing going on there. More the voice than the face, I think. Yeah, I would say more the voice, but I mean, even that, I don't know. Like, I mean, kind of, it kind of got that deep, like, and the, his cadence is the same. Yeah, I couldn't unhear the sort of rumbliness anymore. I feel like if Mark Ruffalo ever needed like somebody to play young Mark Ruffalo, I think he's the guy. (laughs) Yeah, the way he says Covey, it almost sounds like he's saying Cubby, and that kind of sounds like how Mark Ruffalo would say it. Yeah, mm-hmm. truth. All right. For more information on Israel Boussard, who plays Josh, check out every rom-com episode 22 on Happy Death Day. Yeah, that episode was a good time anyway, so you should also yeah, it is. just check it out. <laughs> 100%. Just check it out anyways. It is an incredibly good episode. 
Okay, and so there's obviously a, no, a lot of other important cast and crew, but sadly we do not have time for everyone, but hopefully we'll get around to them in the long run. Before we get into our main discussion of the movie, I really wanted to talk about sort of the long-term trend of YA novels as a source of like teen movies, teen rom-coms, etc. Like I feel like this trend basically started with the popularity of like Harry Potter, um, The Hunger Games, Twilight, and that type of thing. Like those became such money makers, and then the ships kind of associated with them. Like, cause like you had Harry Potter by by two thousand five, you know they were starting to have Harry Potter romances. Then you have Twilight in two thousand eight. Then you got the Hunger Games in twenty twelve. And I feel like okay. this became like a source. People were like, well, Hollywood can now mine, you know, YA novels for for money essentially. Okay, I got yeah, I I feel you on that. I, I mean, I, it's sad because I mean, one of the things is the Hollywood just they they don't produce anything new or original. So for them, they can, they're like, we can go to YA. We know that there is at least a built-in market mm-hmm. because people, these are, these are famously popular books, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is that any different than somebody like picking up another famously prop, you know, famous book property and then turning it into a movie? It just happens to be that their YA has like exploded as also a genre. Yeah, I think, but I think like they've started to like take the audience for that more seriously. And also you're seeing a trend, I think, of adults reading YA maybe more than it used to, you know what I mean? Like it becoming sort of more acceptable for adults to be like, yeah, I like to read a lot of YA novels. Right. Yeah. Like nineties, nineties adaptations were all Tom Clancy and Anne Rice and Michael Crichton kind of, uh, for an older crowd. And I feel like, uh, the aughts have all been for like a younger crowd. Like even, even if they're not YA, I feel like the 50 shades of gray series is still for like, (laughs) younger than the tom clancy crowd i don't know i don't know like there's some there's a i mean the movies book club are about like women older women reading 50 shades of gray so i'm not i'm not sure about that but but i'll i'll take your point anyway yeah 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 Yeah. um but anyway like there's a lot of these movies like before we even get to the streaming era like a lot of the books based on these uh ya novels we've got the perks of being a wallflower in 2012 the spectacular now in 2013 You've got Divergent in 2014, The Fault in Our Stars 2014, Paper Towns 2015. We've got a lot of uh, this, like, that's Nick Green, right? Right, Nick Green, totally. Yeah, and, like, there's lots and lots. Everything, Everything, Love, Simon, The Kissing Booth, which is also a Netflix uh, movie. Becoming Alaska. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a TV show, though, right? That got turned into TV, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But they, you know, so that one was originally supposed to be a movie, and then they decided that they could, that was one of the first they said they could stretch it out. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're starting to do that more, too. They're now starting to stretch out. That was one of the first ones that they decided to stretch out that originally was supposed to be a movie, and then, like, you know, I bet we can stretch this out to a whole series. Oh, it's Looking for Alaska, actually. Yeah, not because Yeah, there you go. Looking for Alaska. Alaska, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found out that Let It Snow is based based on a book by that author, too, which I didn't even realize. I thought that was an original one. What do you guys think about this uh, particular genre of movie? Um, Do you like YA books? Do you like the movies that are based on them in general? What do you think? I mean, I read a lot of YA. I'm careful about it because, like, I hate love triangles. But I I do read a lot of YA. I think moving them into movies is fun. I think that they've done a decent job on many of them. And as usual, a horrible job on a lot of them. Do you have any favorites, like, that you've really enjoyed how they've been adapted? <sighs> Let's see, which one? So, I mean, I, I, I love the Love, Simon. I like, like, Love, Love, Simon. Um, I actually do... I I do appreciate like 
um, like looking for Alaska. That was a really an amazing series. Um, and I love the, one of my favorite all times YA series is the smoke and bone series that the, by Lou Berdugo that just came out. Um, and I think they did a decent job with it and I'm glad that they're actually moving instead to, instead of the first three books, smoke and bone, they're actually just pulling into the six of crows instead. Okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't even know that was being adapted. I know I have a sort of, I don't read a ton of way, but I, I work in a library, so I see it all come through. So all the titles, like at least sound <laughs> familiar to me. I am trying to read a little more YA though, because like, um, I just want to understand what re- what people come to the library are looking for, basically. And that, that was also great reading the Jenny Han books for that reason, just like getting a little more familiar there. And R- Ryan, do you have any experience with the, the YA genre or like, are these movies that are based on them? I do not, but I don't think that it's a bad idea for, especially with all these different streaming services to find a YA uh, series to kind of sink their teeth into and try to get a hit out of it. Yeah. Like, so you think it's, you think it can be a pretty good thing for, for movies then or for TV, et cetera, like to have this as a source material then? I would prefer that than a bunch of reboots. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you think about the demographic that they're trying to hit, this is like the younger de- demographic that they're trying to like, you know, entice. And this is where like the money supposedly is. So it, it's, it's, it, it's good probably that they're like, Hey, we're going to go to something that we know works for that demographic, which are these YA novels. I think it's also possible that these movies and TV shows could lead people to reading as well. You know what I mean? Like we've seen a resurgence in the summer. I turned pretty like being uh, checked out at the library and I saw that actually it's doing very well for book sales. So I think like it can maybe encourage people to read, which is never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. Thank you. Harry Potter books. Yeah. Like all these books, like all these movies and properties have encouraged children to read again, which is fantastic. So. Agree. All right, we're going to get now into the actual movie. Yay. Okay. So the opening scene is really interesting to me because this movie opens with uh, Lara Jean, the character of Lara Jean dressed in this beautiful dress. And she's in this like fake romance novel within the film. So we start out in a different environment entirely. What did you both uh, think of this? I think it does a really good job setting up the character. You know exactly who this character is now. You know so much about her that she like lives on fantasy that, you know, she like, she loves love. I like, I think it does a really good job just like grounding her as a character. Yeah, I agree with that. I think like it was very reminiscent to me of Romancing the Stone, like the way it opens where you're in Joan Wilder's romance novel with her narration. Did you, did you feel that at all? Yes, I did. Yeah. And, and also the actual setting reminded me a lot of the poppy field in A Room with a View. And it's even, she calls the place that she's meeting um, her sister's boyfriend, it turns out, Josh. She's meeting her sister's boyfriend in the field of desire. <laughs> and do they actually kiss? I can't remember if it shows them kissing or if they're just about to. I think they're just about to. Okay, yeah. And she's just like jolted out of her fantasy world suddenly. Um, I saw a comment, I think it was on Twitter, where someone was like, I wanted to watch a whole movie of just that. What do you think? Would you watch this uh, Laura Jean uh, romance novel movie? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <then. laughs> yeah. Hard pass here. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Too cheesy? Oh, so, like if it was a short where I was just like making, like I could like enjoy like making fun of it, that'd be fine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say, unless it's going to be like the movie Enchanted. Yes. 
That I would watch that. I would 100% watch that. Okay, okay. So you disagree with this random Twitter person. All right, that's all right. Yes. <laughs> so Always that- disagreeing with random Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what Twitter's for? I don't know. Anyway, no. <laughs> anyway, so now we get introduced to the sort of character and situation of the movie. Uh, we learn about Lara Jean's family. Uh, her dad is John Corbett. Uh, she also has a Korean American mom who died many years ago, presumably when Kitty was like just a very small child. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Jean also has an older sister named Margot and a younger sister named Kitty. Margot is about to leave for college in Scotland. And Josh, who is Laura Jean's crush from her little romance novel fantasy, is Margot's boyfriend. Uh, he shows up at dinner and she, Margot ends up breaking up with him. Um, what are your general thoughts about this family structure? Uh, I actually just want to talk about the way that they, the way that they wrote in like all the exposition about how, who Josh is, how it relates to Margot and the family. I thought they did a really good job because it's a very complicated situation mm-hmm. and they do it in like two sentences mm-hmm. without like being like, this is specifically what happened. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> I thought they did a really good job. Yeah. Uh, the family situation. I mean, right. I had not thought about it, but like, that there is nothing that there is nothing Asian about this family. Yeah, like, there there is barely anything Asian. Yeah, they go to the Korean market to get the yogurt drink, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. The dad's trying to cook um, Korean traditional Korean food in the opening. Like that's one of the sort of nods to like our mother used to be here and she did this, and now our dad's trying to do this but not doing very well. I guess. Right. Right. Um, I think that's something that I, I noticed on the second watch viewing is I was like, I literally said out loud to myself, this is the whitest like Korean family I've ever seen. It's also kind of weird that he's trying to make Korean food like years after his wife's death. Like you would assume at some point he would be like, I'm not good at this. I'm going to stop. <laughs> or get better at it. Yeah. Or, or get better at it. Or get better at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder like, okay, so I wonder when, when there was pressure in the casting to like not cast an Asian American actress, I wonder if there was pressure in the scripting phase to cut out like references to Korean identity in any way. Cause I feel yeah. like there was a little more in the book. So I'm wondering like if that was partly the result of production pressure, like, Oh, yeah. this, this won't sell blah, 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 bullshit. Cause in the second two movies, they leaned into the Korean identity a little more. Um, then it, really, yeah, it could have been. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, th- I think they probably wanted to show like that it is kind of a story that anyone can relate to. And so they took some of that stuff out, but I still feel like, you know, with just like some little details in the set design, like they mm-hmm. could have kind of added some stuff there. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and also like, okay, we, we all have, we have a dead um, Korean American mom, which adds another layer of complication, but I've noticed there's a ton of dead moms in teen rom-coms to begin with. Like they're, they're all over the place. Some of it's because some of them are based on like, also like Shakespeare plays, right. Or Jane Austen novels. So sometimes you have dead moms in those, but like, what is it with all these dead moms? I mean, ask Disney. They're like the big, you know, women can't live unless they have a dead mom. Apparently you like can't have like trauma unless your mom's dead. It's just, it's very striking. There's usually, there's often a dead mom. Sometimes there's a single mom and the, and the divorced dad, but usually it's a dead mom. I don't know. It's anyway, it's, it's weird. Okay. All right. Now we get to uh, Laura Jean's letters. So we, we get introduced to the fact that Laura Jean writes all these letters that she never sends to her crushes. 
Um, she has a voiceover here. By the way, I think the voiceover works in this movie. I don't always love voiceover, but I think uh, Lana Condor's voice is so nice that I don't care. Mm, I agree. Yeah. She says, um, I write a letter when I have a crush so intense that I don't know what else to do. So Josh, Josh is one of her letters. Um, and she goes, we do, we have a little flashback that shows that she and Josh were friends before he started dating Margot. And then we also get introduced in really brief flashbacks to the other recipients of the letters, Kenny from camp, Peter Kavinsky, Lucas, and John Ambrose McLaren. And I liked all the little like cute flashbacks of the little boys. I thought that was sweet. <laughs> yeah. I also like that. Um, once again, it's good at setting up the characters. Like, you know who these people are based on this, this, her tiny interaction with them where she like crushed on them. Yeah. Right. Cause you're seeing them at their best. They're seeing their most, most whole self. And so, yeah, we talked about this a little um, at the top of the show, but uh, it sounds like both of you have written letters at some point that you never sent. I've done that too. Um, did you write, were they love letters or they, were they more letters to just people in general? Um, I write letters to people when I have something to say that I feel I can't say, or I don't have the opportunity to say to them. Hmm. So one or the other, um, I would never address them though. In fact, <laughs> when I write, when I write them in emails, I make sure that I don't even put their email address in it. Yeah. So it doesn't accidentally send. Oh yeah. I've so done that. I've done that one. Talk. As far as emails go, you know, I've written emails to like family about drama um as but in high school i would write i think love letters to girls it never worked out for me but i probably did write a few letters wait so you wrote them and sent them or just wrote them i'm pretty sure like wrote and sent nice bold i like it not like mailed but you know i understand like uh, like they classmate courier (laughs) No, I respect that. Totally. Big, yeah, big respect. Like, I'm sure, like, even if it didn't work out, I bet there's a girls going around being like, somebody wrote me a letter in high school and they feel like way better about themselves because of that. They didn't make me feel very good Aww. at the time. <laughs> so sorry. Wait, you were they like, were they like, not right? It's all good. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's fine. Were they like straight up mean to you, though? You know, there's awkwardness and. And whatnot when they don't yeah. return those feelings. But yeah. Like I said, I survived. I don't yeah. know. I, I gotta say, like, I do feel like maybe they've looked back on that and been like, oh, that was a really sweet guy who wrote me this letter. I didn't know how to appreciate it back then, but I'm really glad I got that. I that's my that's what I think probably happened. I'm just so if it if it makes you feel any better, like I feel like you put goodness out in the world on some level. Yeah, I'd say the same. Yeah. I, I had a combination. I definitely sent a few love letters and some of them that I maybe shouldn't have sent in my life, but I've written so many that I haven't sent. You don't even know. I don't keep them like Laura Jean though, right? Like I would write them and then I would like decide, well, I'm not sending that one and I'd tear it up and throw it away. So I guess somebody could have gotten some interesting uh, things out of my like garbage can back in the day. That is what you do with letters. You do not address them. And if you're not going to send them, you immediately burn them, throw them away. Or, you know, that's what like. I think the writing of the letter is actually for you to just get all those feelings out. I mean, it's like journaling to the person, right? It's like, I'm getting all these feelings out. I want to say these things. And if I, if I can't say them to you, I'm at least going to have them out into the world somewhere. But like, I always felt that this was a point where I'm like, who keeps these letters? It's just weird to me. Well, well that, that does get addressed at one point in the movie, right? Yeah. 
They're like, well, why why would you address yes. them if you never intended Kitty, to? Kitty asked this valuable question. Yeah. So it's like subconscious or something. Like on some subconscious level, she wanted to send them. Basically. Yeah. 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 I the addressing them is interesting. Yeah, she has them all addressed, and then she puts them in her hat box. So there we go. Okay, so we um, now this is the high school movie series. So we get a look into this high school that Lara Jean attends. Uh, we get to know her friends. So Chris is her like best friend and also cousins with her kind of uh, enemy or frenemy, I guess, because they used to be friends. So Chris is cousins with Jen, who uh, is Laura Jean's former friend. Now she's kind of a bitch and she's dating <laughs> Peter Kavinsky. They say she's kind of a bitch. Oh, do they? Yeah, they do. <laughs> I mean, she's just like coming up to uh, Laura Jean and like just randomly telling her her shoes are terrible. So, I mean, you don't need to do that. There's no need. So, yeah. Yeah, I would eliminate the kind of. I think she's (laughs) just awful. Okay. I have a question for you. In the book, Jen, do they go go into more of the reason why Jen is kind of a bitch and like... Yeah, it's interesting. So, like, without trying to spoil too much of the sequels, too, like, so Jen... Is definitely more complicated than like she's kind of allowed to be in this movie. Um, and maybe even in the first book later, you learn a little bit more about her dynamics. And But the weird thing is the third movie in the series kind of rehabilitates her a little bit. And the third book in the series, it's never like totally like rehabilitated. You're never like, oh, they're going to be friends or some shit, right? I don't know. I don't understand why the third movie tries to do that. It's weird. Anyway, happy I ever afters man happy yeah, ever afters the third movie is like yeah well we'll talk about that later i'm sorry if it's a spoiler anybody it's not a big spoiler so i appreciate you letting me know because it is something i thought about when i watched that the first one i was like you know jen's got to have a really amazing backstory somewhere because like so much anger in such a small frame i wouldn't say it's amazing backstory but it, she has a backstory she does have one so yeah and we find out that Laura Jean had kissed Peter, Jen's boyfriend, in a seventh grade game of spin the bottle. That is the lamest kiss I've ever seen, by the way. Like even seventh graders, I think, do better than that usually, right? Or maybe in this generation of seventh graders, no. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. It is the smallest peck ever. And then later, like, Peter's like, that was pretty hot for the seventh grade. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that's pretty hot for the second grade. <laughs> I mean, I understand why you don't want to have little kids making out with the, each other in movies, right? But like, but but it, it makes it just it kind of belies like what Peter says later, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Small quibble. Small quibble. Uh, and then we see a scene where Lara Jean's eating lunch on the bleachers with Josh, who has just been broken up with. Um, this is something I noticed because we just covered 16 Candles. She's eating carrots and pretty much only carrots. And that feels like a nod to 16 Candles where Molly Ringwald takes carrots to school. Of course, in that movie, she's eating them to increase the size of her breasts, which like not to be creepy, but that is not a problem Lana Condor has in this movie. But uh, yeah, but I feel like it's a direct nod to 16 Candles. What do you think? I 100% agree with that. You When I saw that, I was like, wow, this is very 16 Candles. And then later, 16 Candles comes up and I'm like, boom, right there. Yeah, they're like seeding a lot of like subtle things in here. Yeah. Yeah. We also find out Lara Jean is a bad driver, which I totally relate to because I right now still have anxiety. So I haven't gotten my license since we moved back from Korea again. I have never gotten my license back. So there you go. I relate to her on that level. I'm going to quibble about this and say that Laura Jean is not a bad driver. She is an insecure driver. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's a type of bad driving. Like, I mean. Well, no, because she doesn't get behind the wheel. Like she's not actively bad. She just knows that maybe because she's nervous, she shouldn't be behind the wheel. I mean, she she is kind of actively bad. She almost runs over Peter. Yeah. 
That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Running over someone's pretty much the definition of bad. <laughs> she didn't kill the person. It's fine. Um, well, she's The movie be- would end there. Yeah, she's better than Cher in um, Clueless. I'll give you that. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, and we get the idea now that Laura Jane is not super popular at school because she's at home on a Saturday night watching Golden Girls with Kitty. And um, Sybil, do you mind doing this little bit of dialogue with me? Like, you can be Kitty okay. or Laura Jane. I don't care. I'll be Kitty. All right. Oh, you'll be Kitty. Okay. I'm going to be Kitty. Ready? I'm not telling you this to make you feel bad, but Laura Jean, I'm 11 and I canceled plans to be here tonight. And while you're 16, I don't think you had anything else going on. Am I right? That was way harsh, Kitty. <laughs> I knew you'd try to be Kitty too, because I bet you're a Kitty. <laughs> Such a Kitty. Is she like the character you most identify with in this film? Yes. And that's probably why I really was excited when XO Kitty came out, because I was like, oh, Kitty's the best. She's so mean. <laughs> I love her. She's very practical. Yeah. And very assertive. Very assertive. I like her character. Um, I'm definitely like, I feel like I relate most to Laura Jean, but I don't totally relate to her. I was definitely a homebody. Um, I like to read a lot. I was very dreamy and romantic, but I'm not totally like her. Do you have any, um, Ryan, this is one of our joys when we're watching these uh, teen rom-coms. Do you have any characters that you related to in this film thus far? Maybe Josh, but I don't think I would be friends with a girl and then dating her sister. Oh Thank really? You. you wouldn't be friends. That. You wouldn't be friends with one girl and dating the other, the sister. Uh, I just don't. I I can't recall a situation where. Not that I would like not like oh, the sister, but okay, to okay. be in that situation where it's like, okay, I'm friends with this sister first, and now I'm going to date her older sister. Like, yeah, it's super weird. I oh agree. really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't feel it's like super weird. Like I was friends with like. Th- a- a set of three brothers like when I was in like high high school and a little bit after high school and like I dated one of them but I was friends with his older brother first and like the younger brother definitely wanted to date me at one point but like he was too young for me but but it was definitely like it didn't feel weird like per se I could see this is an interesting question too because like I feel that if enough time has elapsed and you're like in high school you could conceivably date a different sister later but clearly neither of you think this is kosher that's fucking bad. No, why? It's high school. Like, how much do you change care. over the years? Like, okay, ready? Okay, if you if you dated in if like if like let's say someone dated their like their sister or brother or whatever in high school, right? A friend, right? If in college or as an adult you meet again, yeah, then yes. But you can't have been friends, and I mean like good friends. Why? Because it's just weird. Why? It's emotionally weird. It's emotionally toxic. I don't think so. I think if everybody is in agreement and you're very open and transparent about things, like obviously like if somebody's going to be way too hurt, like you got to get that out in the open. And I think that's for the siblings to discuss amongst themselves too. You know what I mean? I think there's just too much communication that needs to happen for that to work out. Ah, Communication is good. You need to communicate anyway. I don't know. (laughs) People don't. And that's, that's the real thing. Well, that's, I mean, I do. So (laughs) Not right, so I'm gonna go on, I'm gonna go one step further. How do you feel about like y- your the dead brother's brother dates the wife 
Wait, what? He's now a widow, right? So what? like, it's no, what, 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 no, what situation are you talking about though? Like, are you talking not about- in this one, but like, let's say Hamlet. How do you feel about that? Well, Hamlet's like, fucked up for a lot of different that's reasons, but that's because it's, it's like a same. power, weird power dynamic and somebody murdered somebody. Like, I'm not talking well, about where to murder take someone. Murder. Take away the murder. <laughs> no, if you take away the murder, it's very different, simple. Okay, well, it falls in the same way to me. It's like weird. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's family shouldn't be in in dating. Nah. There's weird shit like that in the Bible too. <laughs> I I think it really depends on like how serious the relationship was to begin with, for one thing. Okay, and then it depends upon how like the siblings react are relating to one another. So if there's like a lot of bad blood to begin with, you wouldn't want to go there. But if they're like pretty friendly and open with each other, and like they've processed things and like the, the, one of them has moved on, then I don't see what the problem is. It's like a friend's date, like a different friend. You know what I mean? I don't know. Anyway, that's my two cents. All right. I'm glad we got into this actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't wait to see the comments on this. <laughs> Anything else you want to put in Ryan? <laughs> no, I think, I think I'm good on All right. trying to date my ex's sibling <laughs> well like i'm not actively trying to do that myself i could just imagine a situation where it wouldn't be weird that's all like maybe well, i was just trying to think of like if i was was i ever in a hypothetical situation like that not really and then would i want to be in a hypothetical situation like that and you know i guess because like i don't want to cause drama or whatever i probably would just be like yeah i don't want to date my mm -hmm. friend's sibling now it's interesting in the book, they actually like, um, they actually have Josh and Laura Jean really more directly be a possibility than in this movie ever. So I found that interesting. So yeah, there's little conversations they have that make it seem like, oh, this could be an actual triangle. You know what I mean? Mm. Anyway. Yeah. So now we get to a part where the letters are sent. We see um, Kitty like waits for Lara Jean to be asleep. Then she goes to the closet where the letters are located. This is why I don't think it's a spoiler symbol because we see her take down the hat box. And so the letters get sent out. Lara Jean is horrified when she discovers this. And she's very worried that Josh is going to find out that she has a crush on him and that Margot is going to find out that she has a crush on Margot's boyfriend. All right. I'm going to stop you for a second. Ex-boyfriend. Yeah, ex oh yeah, yeah. ex-boyfriend. Ex Sorry, ex-boyfriend. I will say that I have a visceral response to when Kitty discover. I mean, when Kitty sends out those letters and then LJ discovers it, I was like, I literally stood up and was like, oh no, like so loud. Wow. It was like, oh no. And then I'm like, I would die. And then she faints. I'm like, exactly. Wow. I'm like, I would die. I would leave this school and never come back. <laughs> So you would not kiss Fair. you would not kiss Peter Kavinsky. Nope. I would leave I would run away and leave the school and go to my dad and be like, I have to change schools. I can't <laughs> go there ever again. That school is dead to me. Yep. Yeah, she finds out because Peter confronts her with a letter and basically tells her it's not gonna happen. And that's when she faints. Um, yeah, the fainting is sort of believable. I don't actually find it very believable that she then kisses Peter when she sees Josh approaching because she's such, she's kind of a wallflower character. So it seems like totally out of character, but it works as a plot device. So, and I don't mind it. Yeah. I mean, also like, I think you could make it like, I agree with you hundred percent You like on this, but I think you could make a case for the fact that she like in her mind, it's all gone sideways and like, <laughs> this is as good as it's getting. So th this might be a way out. You know, yeah. Okay. 
Then we further find out that Lucas James has received his letter and they like they show a flashback of when they dance together at the freshman homecoming. And Lucas says, you know, I'm gay, right? And she did not know, but then she pretends she does. And like he says he's out, but he's not super out because it's high school. And, you know, I, th- I thought he was a cool character, like nice character to have in the movie. And they keep him throughout the series as well. Yeah, I, I like I like that he's the next person who kind of like de-escalates her a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that like I like that it like she fell in love with somebody or like had a crush on somebody who's just like really sweet, you know, just very sweet. Yeah. A camp letter comes back returned to sender so we don't have to deal with Kenny from camp. And then we see Laura Jean in her room having an imaginary conversation with Josh while he reads out what she wrote in her letter to him, which I thought was a cool plot device. Cause like, okay, I will confess, like when I get crushes on dudes, I have imaginary conversations with them sometimes. <laughs> so they don't like appear next to me, but I've definitely had the imaginary conversation. Like I will admit to that. So I related to Laura Jean on this level. How about I, yourselves? Yep. Yep. True. Yeah, not next to me, though. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't, like, actually envisioned a physical presence or anything. But, like, I've definitely gone through, like, this is what this conversation would go like. And then there's this part where Josh is, the real Josh is approaching her door to ring on the doorbell. And imaginary Josh says about him, I'm more real to you than he is. And I thought that was really interesting because, like, I do think, like, some of these crushes, especially when you're younger, you will project so much about a person. And they and that projection becomes the reality to you. I felt I felt that was a deep moment, actually. Yeah, I agree. Any more to say about the letter discovery section of the film from either of you? I think that she takes it way better. Like I said, I, she takes this way better than I would have. Yeah, I mean, I think she would have probably, even though it's not revealed that it's Kitty who sends out the letters. I feel like she would have probably tried to kill her anyway. <laughs> just just being a possibility. Yeah. Also, like she she doesn't like try to hide from it or anything. She doesn't like. Yeah, I I'm the, the one point I was like, I like I said, I would die. I would die. And I'd be like, nope, nope, dot com. And I'm never going to school again. She like she's just like, I guess this is a thing now and I just have to deal with it. She does hide from Josh, though. Like there's a scene now where she like actually like climbs out of her window and like rolls down like the side of her house to escape from Josh. Yes, but I think she's escaping from Josh because he's the one that she's still actually crushing on. Yeah, I mean that and the fact that like, well, both of you think it's like awkwardsville to like, you know, have a crush on someone who's dating your siblings. (laughs) You've established why that's a taboo and why it's bad. All right, so when Lara Jean escapes Josh, she goes to this like really cute cafe and there she ends up having a conversation with Peter who follows her there. I really wanted to quickly put in about this cafe. So I found this cafe, the corner cafe to be very Portlandy. Like I was trying to figure out like where it was in Portland. Cause it looked just like, like the kind of place you would see in North Portland when I was living there anyway, but it was actually in Vancouver. Um, it's such a cute cafe. It has like jukeboxes at all the tables, like these little stools at the counter, everyone's getting milkshakes. And it used to actually be a real place that was in uh, North Vancouver at 1490 Pemberton Avenue. But since it's been changed to be the Deuce Diner, they have like some of the original features of that cafe, but it's not like the same. So I was actually kind of disappointed. I would have like totally loved to do rom-com tourism to this corner cafe. That would have been cool. Also, the Deuce Cafe is not a good name. Yeah, it's it's spelled D-O-U-C-E. Maybe it means sweet because that's how you say sweet in French. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Well, I mean, if you're on a... 
if you're if you're in a country where like people speak French, like where they learned it in school, you know what I mean? I guess. Yeah, you're in a, if you're in a Frank if you're in a country where you're required to study French in elementary school, it might have a different feeling. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, so Peters pursued her to the very cute cafe with the jukeboxes on the tables, which I covet, and he wants more info about the letters. Um, what is your impression of this scene? Um, it didn't really make an impact on me, this particular okay. scene. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's you knew it was coming, and it moves the plot along. See, I actually like this scene quite a bit. Uh, that's interesting. Like, I don't think it's like a standout. I don't think it's like something that you super remember, but like, I think it functions very well as a getting to know you scene, um, especially because there's so many of these these days that are so poorly written where none of the dialogue feels organic and it feels super obviously exposition-y. Like, I felt like they talked to each other like two teenagers might talk to each other in this situation. Oh, I, I, mean? I think it's well written. True. Yeah. And I like the chemistry between these actors. I don't think it's necessarily very like sexual, but I think like there's a romantic and platonic chemistry between them. Ne- neither of you are very passionate about this film though. I can tell. I mean, they, they seem very chummy. Yeah. yeah. I think that it, it, it is a little surprising that they barely know each other. Why is that? Like it feels like they, because like you said, they have this chemistry where it feels like, you know, they're very comfortable with each other. Was this like, I can't remember if it was in this movie or the next movie where it is revealed that they were all friends when they were kids. It's like, this one. Okay. They, they, they talk about it. Yeah. They okay. talk about how they were all like, not like best friends, but they were all like, you know, friendly to each other. Yeah. They were like, other. yeah, they were in the same friend group when they were kids basically. Yeah. Yeah. So um, at the end of their little conversation where Peter finds out all about the love letters and all five of them, he gives LJ a lift home with her bike. And he suggested to Laura Jean that they should fake date because the kiss made Jen really jealous and that it will also help her with her Josh problem. Um, she initially rejects the idea, but then she's back at home with imaginary Josh. She wants imaginary Josh to go away and imaginary Peter comes into her head and pushes him out, which I thought was a pretty good plot device. Yeah, that is good. I like that. I like too that like it's really you can tell when it's their imaginary which is, I don't know what they did in the filming to make that a thing. I'm trying to think of the lighting changes or anything. You know, I think it's just the way that like, I think it's the way that like the, the, just the like, staging of them. Mm-hmm. They're always there. They're, she doesn't make like direct eye contact. Usually, you know, it's like they sit behind her or, or next to her, mm-hmm. but she doesn't like make direct eye contact. Yeah. It's very well done. It is. It is very well done. All right, so we'll move on to their fake dating agreement. So Lara Jean decides she's going to say yes to dating Peter, fake dating Peter, and they draw up a contract. But first she finds him on the lacrosse field, says, let's do this, and he kisses her. I thought that was a pretty good kiss, too. I do, too. I liked it. This is like our second good kiss in a movie, too, already. Yeah, so it's surprising that, you know, in the contract she's like, no kisses. Yeah. Because I was like, that seemed like a pretty good one. Seems like you enjoyed it, Lara Jean. She's shy and kind of prudish on the outside, right? Yeah, and she specifically says, like, she doesn't want all her firsts to be fake. So, like, Peter's experience, she's not, and she doesn't want to end up in a situation where, like, they're going to second base, I guess, probably, right? And But it's not real for him, which I can relate to. What do you think, though, Ryan? You'd be be thinking that she'd be like, oh, I like this kiss. I want to see where this goes. No, well... 
I mean, I will, I will uh, go with what Peter says, and you, you kissed me first. Mm-hmm. Like you've already had a fake kiss, and then we had another fake kiss. Like now, there's no more kissing. Like that's a weird rule. I think like it could make sense on two levels. Like on one level, it could be like, um, on one level, it could be like she liked the kiss, and so she's afraid that if she likes it more, like she's going to get hurt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on another level, like if you have a good kiss, it tends to build into other things. And that would take her into territory where where it's these first that she's getting into. So I think like that's how I would defend that. Yeah, I think it's like I like to see these good kisses in movies, though, because we're not getting enough of them in the modern rom-com era for whatever reason. Like there's just fewer like we've been noting on the show, like when we watch the modern rom-coms, there tend to be fewer kisses than there were in like maybe the 80s or something. So it's interesting to see. And it's interesting that this one has a lot of kisses. So maybe that's part of why it was popular. I don't know. Yeah. And like good kisses, like solid. Like, yeah. You know, like the, you actually feel a connection between them. And, you know, there's not like slipping of tongues and stuff. But it's like feels like a, like good, nice kisses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So now we come, we come now to this contract that we're talking about here. And I've got a clip of that. So are we all ready for the, for the clip? Yep. Let's do it. But we need to figure something out because people are going to get very suspicious if I'm not allowed to touch you. Okay, um, you, you have a point. How about this? You can put your hand in my back pocket. Hand in your back pocket? Mm-hmm. What the hell is that? 16 candles. It's the opening image. It's a couple's thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe in the 70s. 16 candles was the 80s. John Hughes? Nothing? Mm. Okay. Two more rules. You have to watch 16 Candles with me because it's a classic. And we can never tell anyone that this relationship is fake because it would be too humiliating for the both of us. Duh. First rule of Fight Club. What? Are you serious? You've never seen Fight Club? Oh my God. Okay, write it down. Double feature. After we watch the Candles movie, we are watching Fight Club. Fight Club, 16 Candles. No snitching. Anything else? I could, um, I could write your notes every day. You do that? Sure. Jen was always on me to write her them. I never did, so if I start sending them to you, she'll be pissed. Also, you have to come with me to my lacrosse games and parties. Then you have to pick up my sister and I and drive us to school every single day. Okay. But you're coming with me on the ski trip. Yeah. So, like, the ski trip they allude to at the end is, like, notorious for people losing their virginity on it. So Lara Jean initially argues with that, but then decides she'll agree to it because she thinks it's not going to happen because it's, like, three months away. But anyway... uh, it's a pretty fun contract scene. I don't know. What do you think? I really liked this scene a lot. I liked everything except the fact that he can't remember that the movie is called 16 Candles. <laughs> he has a bad short-term memory, I guess. This candle the Candles movie. movie. This candle movie. It sounds kind of lazy to me. Or maybe he's being dismissive. I don't know. Could I think be. he's being dismissive. I agree. I think he's just being like, whatever your movie. But I do like that Like we have like Fight Club 16 Candle um watch together this is a this is magic to me 
There's a double feature right there. Like, why didn't I think of that? It's a double feature for 16 Candles, like, clearly. Totally. There's nothing like watching Fight Club and 16 Candles together. I kind of want to do that now. I am. I'm here for that. I'm here for it. (laughs) I don't know what you could possibly learn from that experience, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I like the concept that they were going to sit down and for, like, four to five hours just watch these two movies together back to back. I do like that there's a lot of movie talk, though, between them. Like, these are characters who watch other movies, and I, that's also true in the books as well. A lot of rom-coms are mentioned at one point or another, and other types of movies are mentioned in um, the To All the Boys books. Okay, anything else about this scene? For as, like, hokey rom com as this scene is, it is, it's pretty fun. Yeah? Oh, okay. He's totally Ruffalo too. When I listen to it again, I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's roughs. It's young roughs. Anyway, young Hulk, like don't tell Disney or they'll make it. (laughs) To that. All right. So they now begin fake dating. um, And Laura Jean's life begins to change a little bit uh, due to dating Peter. So let's see. Peter gives them LJ and Kitty a ride to school. And Kitty is won over when he's going to give them a ride every day. And Peter likes, I don't actually know how to pronounce this drink, even though they had it in Korea everywhere, but I didn't drink it. It's like Yakult, I think is what yeah, it's Yeah, Yakult. Yeah, Yakult. Yeah. Yakult. It is, it's, they call it a Korean drink. It's actually um, a J- Japanese drink, but it is incredibly popular in Korea. I saw people selling them on the streets. Like there were actual vendors who like only sold these drinks on the streets and they wore these particular uniforms. And um, yeah, they, people drink them all the time. I'm really not into fermented skim milk with specialized bacteria. That's not my jam, but I've heard that people like them. Have you? It's a yogurt drink. It's a yogurt. Yeah, I don't like yogurt. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, it sounds it sounds so much grosser as a fermented skim milk drink with a special strain of bacteria. It's a treat we give my daughter. Oh yeah, so it's like so it's like definitely something you enjoy like regularly then. Me, not so much, but my daughter loves them. Okay, cool. Yeah, they're really tiny. Like for people who are just listening and don't remember this from the movie, they're very tiny size as well. They're like a shot, right? It's like a little shot drink. Yeah. Well, anyway. People like to mix it with soju. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing I didn't drink a lot of when I lived in Korea because I can't handle liquor at all. So (laughs) anyway, but apparently like the sales of this drink after the movie like really went up and their stock prices also went up. So like I didn't get, I do couldn't find hard data on this other than like their stock prices had gone up. Like Mashable did an article on it though, and had some also tweets from people reporting that it was sold out. Like after this movie came out, I can believe it. I can believe that people would seek it out and be like, I want to drink that. Okay. Let's see. Um, they get to school. Um, everyone's looking at Peter and Laura Jean cause it's like big news. And Peter does put his hand in her back pocket. Um, oh yeah. Quibble with the last scene. It was not the opening image of 16 candles. It is in the awesome opening montage though. And it is like actually one of the most memorable images for, for me from 16 candles is the two people with their hands in each other's back jean pockets. I thought it was like so sexy actually. I feel that they did a really good job that this was really sexy that like, he's like putting in her face that like, you just want me to put my hand in your back pocket? Okay. This is going to be so hot. <laughs> he doesn't do it quite as hotly as they do it in 16 Candles, though. He kind of like spins her around and does it briefly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't have the soundtrack behind it either that, to really help that Hughes soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, the soundtrack in this is good, too. I want to talk about that later, too, by the way, later in the episode, especially since we have a soundtrack expert with us today. Yeah, no, I thought like I thought it was a well done little scene here. Um, he then Peter also hands her a note in front of Jen, who notices it. 
Yeah, but like LJ's having a hard time with this. Uh, she's avoiding talking to Margot because she doesn't know how she would explain to her that she has a fake boyfriend because she's trying to avoid talking to Josh. Peter now gets Lara Jean to come to a high school party, which she doesn't really necessarily want to go to. Um, what do you all think of this party scene? Like beyond the fact that like these people are super rich who have this house. Is this again a hearkening to 16 candles in a party scene? Cause I felt like a lot of the shots were very much the same when I hmm. watched through it the second time. Interesting. I mean, certainly they haven't trashed the house like in 16 candles, like the house looks no. like people are not. Yeah. Which is interesting. This is like a total departure from like the eighties where if there was a party, everything was getting destroyed. In this movie, people are being actually quite respectful. That is true. But I think it is a different time. The 80s, you were, everything was like, you know, F the man, F, the, you know, F our parents, whatever. And now we're like, um, we have to answer to our parents and the man controls us. <laughs> I don't know about that. I can't imagine my dad pushing me out the door to go to a party. Oh, no, no. What, what, yeah, not my parents. What what would their what would their response be if some guy came over while you were like baking or a woman came over while you were like baking or doing something like that? What would they have said? I mean, it, like if I was in high school, they'd be like, "Oh, are you from school? Are you here to study?" It's <laughs> so, like back to the party business. Like what before they go into the party, Peter makes uh large and take her hair down, then she he keeps her favorite scrunchie, which I was like, which will be important. Um, then he makes her put a, her phone background picture as his picture and he's already got her as his picture. This is like totally like uh, beyond my understanding of dating. Cause we didn't have smartphones when I was in my like big dating era. Right. This, is this like a thing that like, if you don't have this picture, like it's bad. Like, I don't know. I have a picture of my cat. So I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't know either, but I am also an old lady. Yeah. I, I think it, kind of tracks like if if i don't have a picture of my family on my phone i think people would be like don't you have a wife and kids but does it have to be like your background image like i don't even have a background image i haven't even like changed it from like whatever the regular thing is well that's just a travesty it's a tra okay <laughs> like i i think i think a lot of people expect it i don't think they'll call you out on it yeah. if you don't but i think it's just something that People expect like your desktop of your computer. Yep, didn't change is, that either. You know. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I don't have it changed on all my computers, but yeah, no, you're probably more normal than I am. I, that's why I'm asking your opinion because, like, I'm just like I, I remember that these people exist and I have their pictures on my Facebook. So I don't, I don't know. It's interesting. Okay, and then like, there's another like sort of like I don't know if this is real lingo that anybody uses because there was an, actually an article trying to figure this out. Um, the girl, a girl at the party wants to know how far Peter and Lara Jean have gone. And this is the quote, H on B, H on C, H up and down on P, T on C. <laughs> so there's an actual, there's an actual article I went to because I kind of, this is what I thought too, is what the article concluded that H would equal hand, B would equal breast, C would equal clit, P would equal penis and T would equal tongue, which is like some very bold, um, you know, very easily figured out abbreviations, but that's the only way I could put it together. Did either of you try to figure this out or did you just let it wash over you? I let it wash because I had no idea what they were talking about. I think I knew enough about what they were talking about that I didn't bother trying to figure out exactly what they were talking about. I'm yeah, not like what bases. They're talking about what bases, right? Yeah. Is, like it was easy. Like what base did you get? 
Yeah. Apparently the the yeah, the new bases are hand on breast, hand on clit, hand up and down on penis and tongue on clit, according to this article. So you're welcome. This was not in the book. I have no idea if this is anything that's real with youths or if this just came out of Sofia Alvarez's brain, but there you are. All right, the youths come back to us. Let us know. <laughs> I hope some youths listen to our podcast. I mean, we have listeners in like Nepal, apparently, but I don't know if we have listeners under like 30. So it'd be exciting to find out if we did. It would be. Okay, so let's see what else we have. Oh, so the scrunchie comes in again. Um, Jen takes Laura Jean's scrunchie away from Peter and he lets her. Like, this is the worst thing Peter does in this movie, in my opinion. What do you think? Um, Agree. This whole plot kind of bothers me. Okay. Tell more. Tell us more. Because she says it's my favorite scrunchie, but then proceeds to forget that it's gone for the almost rest of the movie. That's true. Yeah. Apparently it wasn't that favorite. She didn't need it that much. Like I can understand like she's kind of caught in this whirlwind with Peter where like, you know, maybe she doesn't remember every day, but like, they get to the ski trip, which is three months. That's true. And and it, she's been without her favorite scrunchie for three months. And then yeah, all of a right. sudden she, she sees it again and then then she gets furious. All right, I'm here. I'm here with you now. You know what? Forget the scrunchie. She didn't have any cares about that scrunchie. She threw she threw it to the side. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so you no longer are upset about it. <laughs> I am not. I'm like, you're right. You're absolutely you won me over, Ryan, with this like it's been so long. You're like They've never talked about the scrunchie again. She wasn't like, by the way, can I have my scrunchie back? And he's like, oh, I don't know where it is. I keep it in my bed. I don't know. It was like so weak of Peter, though, to just let Jen take that off of him. I mean, come on. Like, it's so disrespectful, too. It's not his thing to give away. So, like, that was like my one of my big Peter Kavinsky is not as good as, like, you know, he's cracked up to be. That's all. True. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of doesn't step up to the plate a couple times in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get it. We'll go farther in that later. Yeah. All right. So after the party, they go to the corner cafe again. And Laura Jean is advising Peter not to contact Jen when she's texting him. Probably very good advice. Um, And they also get into a discussion of dating and why Laura Jean hasn't, you know, dated. Why she's why she like hasn't sent her letters. She says the more people that you let into your life, the more they can just walk right out. And we also find out that Peter has reason to have that same baggage, but apparently doesn't as much because his dad left him and his mom and now has a new wife and kids. So I think it was interesting that like both of them have a good reason to have fear abandonment, but it's really only Laura Jean that actively does. Or at least that does in the particular way where she's not dating people. Right. Where she's right. Where, you know, she's showing it in that way. Yeah. Cause I guess you could argue that Peter still experiences it, but he wants to experience it while being in a couple. Do you think Peter's one of those, like a person who can't uh, not be in a couple? Like, like that's like what something that he needs. Probably. I mean, I agree. Having, yeah. read the, having read the books even kind of is more so that too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's not particularly examined either. I don't think that aspect of his personality. Well, I know that they tried to explain his ongoing friendship or whatever you want to call it with Jen due to like him being, or her being his like first real girlfriend, but it may just be because he's got abandonment issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. It's coming into, coming into focus now. So what do you think about Peter Kavinsky as a love interest at, compared to maybe other teen rom-com love interests? Like where does he measure up there? 
Oh, <laughs> that was quite a groan. Okay. I, well, you know, because I'm trying to, like, I've never thought about, like, him as, uh, like, in, like, I don't think about, like, teen love interest that often, but, like, like, let's, let's take, like, something like, um, 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm-hmm. Way better love interest. Like, he's, like, weak sauce in comparison. To Heath Ledger. To Heath Ledger, yeah, because yep. he's, like, Heath Ledger, right? So, um... I don't, I'm, I'm going to say this is going to sound mean, but I don't think he has like the acting, like the acting background for me or the acting clout hmm. um, to, to make himself somebody who's that important. Like, I think you could have switched him out with anybody. I See, I disagree with that. I think Centineo has a certain charm to him. And uh, like, he's, I definitely think he's good looking enough too. I think he has a good look, he has a good voice. I, I agree that his acting chops are certainly not at Heath Ledger level. That's acting a lot. That's asking a lot, right? Not at like Eric Stoltz level either, right? But compared to like, I think the contemporary love interests in some of these movies, I think he's a real standout. I think the ones we had in the eighties, you had some like really great actors were in some of these roles. So even Michael Schofflin from 16 Candles, like actually was a pretty impressive present screen presence. Yeah. He it's really interesting. was. Okay. So I'm going to ask the question, do we really have teen do we have to the same levels like when we were growing up? Do we have teen like romance dramas? Oh, wait, we do. Like they're all over. If you go on streaming, they're all over the place. It's just like we don't have like per se the stars not, that we used to have, but right, Centineo's kind of like leading that in a way. Right. And it's because yeah. we don't have them because like they don't like if they're streaming, they're not like going to theaters, right? They're not like putting money into Not for into the most the... part. No, not for the most part. Right. And I, so I wonder, like, I don't know if you could even make a comparison. So okay, mm-hmm. I'll take. I'll, I'll take. Yeah, your... you don't have an auteur like John Hughes behind these movies with, with you know the big soundtracks that they had in the eighties. A lot of these people we've been talking about, and like Paul Rudd and Clueless and Heath Ledger, like they can, they could all like just charm your pants off with just you know with just a look, right? But yeah, Centineo doesn't have that sort of magnetism, but I I don't think he's a bad, I don't think he's a bad leading man in this case. What about the actual character? Do you think this is a guy you would have wanted to date? In your case, Ryan, um, you could conceive of it. Is this like a stand-up guy you would recommend to date one of your friends, maybe? Yeah, kind of to piggyback off of, you know, the last conversation, I I don't think the script does Noah Centineo any favors. (laughs) I think Peter is kind of of lame. Okay, kind of lame. All right. (laughs) Sybil? Um, I don't say he's lame. I... I like I would be like I mean he's fine I date him I guess like he's like good looking enough and he he's he's not dreamy right but like he's like nice and whatever and he just doesn't have much of a character to me like of, <laughs> of himself which if that makes sense if he's like that's actually who he is as a person he just doesn't have his own like like life and knowledge about living his own life I might have possibly dated him because he's cute and fun and like warm. I think that's an important aspect of his uh, character is he's very affectionate and warm. I think he's also, po- he's also popular. So that is worth it in high school. Anyways, he's popular. Yeah. You raise your clout. I didn't really care about that, but like, but the warmth was, is really valuable. Like, I think I would choose him over Josh for sure. But um, in the second movie, like, I'm just going to say there's like, we get, you know, John Ambrose McLaren becomes a factor. Not the same like John Ambrose McLaren that you see a glimpse of in this movie, but they chose a different actor. And they really cast that guy way too well because he makes a very viable uh, rival to Peter. That's all I'm going to say. 
All right, so let's um really quick. I also want to talk about just like the fake dating trope in rom coms and romance in general. And I want to say I love the fake dating trope. When I was looking for more examples of actual movies, there were way fewer than I thought there were. It feels like such a popular trope, but maybe that's more in books than movies. What do you think? You've pulled out Can't Buy Me Love, awesome. Love Don't Cost a Thing, Drive Me Crazy, The Wedding Date, The Perfect Date, which yes, also has Centinello in it, um, Holiday, Just Go With It, The Proposal. I'm trying to think if there there are other like I feel like there are so many more of them, but they're I, all like yeah, I felt there were. She's too. all that kind of a yeah. She's all that yeah. Wait, Isn't that a fake dating? Is that fake dating? Or it's like a bet dating? Yeah, it's a bet like- date. I think that's fake dating. Does she know that he's fake dating her though? Like, are they in, in agreement to be? But fake it, but dating? it shouldn't matter if they know. I think it matters to some extent, like because fake dating, like if it's like two people fake dating each other, is a different dynamic. You know what I mean? Like, like it's not like Ten Things I Hate About You is like that too, where she finds out and it's like this big deal. Like in this, it's like two people in it together. You know what I mean? I think that does make a difference for the trope for me. I have I put down um, for later. I have the Duff, and the Duff is like okay, fake sweet, yeah, that's fake sweet. dating. But I feel like there were like dozens of these and it turns out they're just like, I looked up articles to try to find more and they're just like, aren't as many as I thought. Maybe I just want more of it. Cause it's like my favorite trope. Is yeah, it? Too- I'm like, I'm like, this is a pretty, for, for like rom-coms, that's a pretty solid list of, of like, <laughs> okay. trope. I mean, let's say, that- if we went to like the Hallmark movies, it's like every third one. Oh that's yeah. The Hallmark one. movies for sure. Yeah. We could dig into a lot more there. Yeah. That's for sure. This isn't a movie, but that British sitcom spaced had the same sort of premise. Okay, cool. I haven't seen that one. No, I love, so I personally love the fake dating trope. Like, where do you both come down on it? Is it something you you enjoy? Is it an aspect of the film you enjoy? Or could you live without it? I like a good, like an arranged marriage fake dating trope. I appreciate that. I prefer it to the bet dating trope. Ah, yes. Yeah. The, the meanness of the meanness of that always winds up the, the big misunderstanding that always happens on the like the the like we're I'm, I'm daring you or I'm betting you to date yeah. someone. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of reasons I like the fake dating trope, but I asked on Twitter some people what they thought about it, and I think one of the users that responded like had like probably what my response would be too. So on Twitter at Jane Austen BFF said, I don't even know why I like this trope so much but maybe because it's a way for two people that may not have necessarily gotten to know each other to get that chance. And I love to see the sparks fly when they get to know the real person underneath the surface. And I would kind of agree with that because I like watching, like seeing dissimilar people become involved. And sometimes it's really hard to justify why these people are involved, but the fake dating trope kind of takes care of that. And also a lot of times you find these two characters like learning from each other in that way because they're so different. So I think that's one reason I like it. I'm gonna have to say that I like I like the fact that they're like they they discover each other. I actually like when they start as enemies first, and mm. then they agree to be to like do something because they have a, a mutual cause. Yeah, but they don't even like each other. That's actually my favorite version of that trope. So a fake dating enemies to lovers overlay sort of. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I love this. I have one of these in my double feature recommendations, one of these fake dating movies, and we'll talk more about it there too. Um, I also, interestingly enough, in a critique of this movie, Plan A magazine said that the fake dating trope with a contract is also very popular in Korean dramas, including My Name is Kim Samsoon and Full House. So I did not know this because I'm not a K-drama person, but like, uh, yeah, that's, I'll take their word for it. Not surprised. 
Okay, so we, Lara Jean and Peter, through their fake dating, are growing a little closer, and they are still fake dating in November. I like that they, like, they, we can tell, like, how far forward they've moved. And I, I remember when I watched this first time, I was like, wow, this fake dating is going pretty well, um, considering they're still together. That's true. That's true. They have little markers. They actually show what month it is, which is a way, way they show time passing, which is kind of a lazy cheat, but it works. It, it's fun. Yeah, we get to see scenes of them growing closer. We see um, Peter is, in fact, watching 16 Candles with Lara Jean and her sister. And we can talk about that a little more in our next section. Probably it would be relevant. Kitty begins liking Peter a lot. And Lara Jean's a little worried about that. Laura Jean eats with Peter's family too. So she's getting to know him. And we have kind of a second conversation where they talk about their family relationships and mom's death and dad leaving kind of on a deeper level. It's interesting. It's almost the same conversation, but it didn't feel repetitive to me because it felt like just revisiting naturally something that they already talked about. Yes. I felt that way too. We also have a scene where Chris and Laura Jean overhear Peter and Jen talking and Jen's still trying to get Peter back. And she hasn't told Chris that she's fake dating. If that's my best friend, I'm telling her. I'm sorry. I agree. That was, that seemed like, is she really your best friend? Do you even have friends? (laughs) Have you not seen Fight Club? (laughs) Okay, so we get to the point in the fake dating relationship where they both like each other. But neither one is telling the other that they like each other and both are just getting jealous about perceived slights, which is always the best part of the fake dating movie because, you know, it's going to go down anytime. Totally. Yeah. But now we're going to before we get to our spoiler section, we're going to talk about uh, kind of like how the representation in this movie is. So this is like a movie that both received a lot of praise for um, representing Asian American characters in a movie and also received a fair amount of critique and pushback at the same time. I'll introduce a little bit about the background and then like, let's give our opinions and then we can address some of the individual critiques. So like probably needless to say, but just in case you have been hiding under a rock, there's a long history of like poor representation of Asian Americans in our film and TV. So white actors have portrayed Asian characters in yellow face in many occasions, or they're just absent Asian American characters. They don't appear in the movies or they're appearing as stereotypes, such as like we had in 16 Candles that we talked about on our last episode. Um, as of 2018, the New York Times reported a study from USC that found that Asian Americans played only 1% of leads in Hollywood, and they represent about 6% of the population. So that is a huge uh, deficit right there. But 2018 was a year when things started to maybe turn around. Like I haven't seen like the recent data on what the percentages are these days, but 2018 was the year Crazy Rich Asians became a huge success, right? And then To All the Boys was released only two days later. But the thing is, the crazy thing is Crazy Rich Asians was notable for being the first Hollywood studio film with an all-Asian cast in leading roles since The Joy Luck Club in 1993. That is insane, okay? That is Yeah, we talk about that a little bit more on our episode on Crazy Rich Asians, which is episode 12 of the podcast. So this movie was in some ways a step ahead. We have all three sisters are played by Asian American or multiracial half or part Asian American actresses. Um, Lana Condor is, as we mentioned, a Vietnamese American adoptee. Janelle Parrish, who plays Margot, is half Chinese and born in Hawaii. Anna Cathcart is half Chinese and from Canada. So these are the actors we have in here. And there's also a little bit of other representation in this movie, but not Asian. Like we have uh, the actor who plays uh, Lucas, one of the recipients of the letters, is portrayed by a Black actor. 
Trezzo Mahoro. So before we address some of the individual critiques of the movie, what is your general impression of the representation in this movie? Obviously, with this Asian-American family, you know, the three sisters are all half Asian or full Asian. Um, That's a huge step. And the fact that, you know, they're not talking with accents and there's not a bunch of stereotypical traits like, oh, Laura Jean is so good at math. Um, Obviously, those are all huge steps for kind of normalizing Asian-Americans in uh, Hollywood films. So uh, I think on that note, it's great. I think, you know, having one of the crushes being black, I think that is also uh, great. But the fact that he also comes out as gay uh, uh, immediately eliminates him as possible as being a suitor for her. So she's choosing between two white men. Yeah. In the end. Yeah, I did see that. I saw that noted, actually. I think it was in the Plan A article that I actually read. Yeah, that like, in a way, like, is it like trying to make the like, men of color, like not a threat to white men? Like, I thought that was an interesting critique, an interesting point of view. Sybil, any general thoughts you had when you watched it? Or No, I, you, Ryan, you, you pointed out that like, I was like, so our one black guy is a guy who's like, gay, and therefore she can't get with her. So I'm like, okay, but I'm like, I guess it's oh i think the number one thing i felt was weird is like she literally has no other like asian people in her life Mm -hmm. like none and that makes me like a little weirded out in the sense that wouldn't you seek some people who were who had like the same like i don't know trials and tribulations and like walk through the same life that you do yeah, it's interesting. You do see like Asian background characters in the film. Yeah, too, and none of them are friends. friends. Yeah, yeah. Like, and the second movie did seem to correct for some of this. Um, they changed John Ambrose McLaren. He appears briefly in the end of this film, like as a white kid. They changed him to, I don't exactly know what race, but multiracial, I think, in some sense. Um, and they do have her interacting with Korean family, albeit a little briefly. But yeah, I think maybe that was even in direct response to this, or maybe it's just a fact that the book was like you know a little richer on some of those topics in the second book but yeah both very good points okay so some of the different criticism i'll put a couple of the articles in our show notes but yeah we mentioned like some of the criticism was around how Lara jean's potential love interests none of them were like asian men so han win uh, wrote in indiewire while casting Asian actors in non-stereotypical roles is important for representation, it's especially significant when Asian men are cast in romantic roles to counteract the history of Western media portrayals that have desexualized and emasculated them. And I think it's also interesting that like the like, Crazy Rich Asians also received some criticism because Henry Golding is not like a full Asian actor. He's like a biracial actor. So some people were saying, well, they couldn't let him be you know, the most Asian actor couldn't be the one getting the woman. I thought, so there's these issues of representation are often very fraught. I think probably because there's such a dearth still of roles for Asian American and Asian actors. What do you think about that notion? Yeah, I think that that's actually, I I think it's corrected also some now because of crazy race Asians and where you'll see more diversity than we've ever seen in film, which is not saying it's huge, but like we're seeing more. Um, But I do think that, that that's right on. It's a very good point. Yeah. And to piggyback off the emasculation of Asian men, like there's not a lot of romantic comedies with an Asian male character. And if there is, it's like crazy, crazy rich Asians or like, um, always be, always be my maybe where the, uh, 
the female interest is also Asian. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Hollywood probably just has an interracial romance problem in general. Like, I think they're kind of scared of it. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lack of Asian men in romantic comedies. And then when they are, they're usually chasing after an Asian woman. Yeah, I felt like Randall Park, like you mentioned, Always Be My Maybe. He was so good in that movie. And I almost, I kind of wish he'd hit his rom-com stride earlier. I wish people had cast him earlier. Because if they ever made a remake of When Harry Met Sally, like he would be my pick for Harry. I'm not saying they should remake When Harry Met Sally. But if they did, he would have been my Harry, like straight up. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's so good. Like, I think he's just so funny and also like charming. Like I totally see him as a romantic lead, but like a lot of these like actors are now getting to like where they're probably, unless it's a Nancy Myers movie, they're probably not considered young enough for a rom-com anymore. <laughs> right. But like, even like a uh, Steven Yoon, like he doesn't do romantic movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's married to Minari, but that's a, a Korean family. Hmm. And then in um, Beef, which is not a romantic thing, he's the lead in that opposite Ali Wong. So once again, it's like Asian male, Asian female. Yeah, I think the Plan A guys mentioned a couple exceptions, like the Big Sick, and there was one other. But like, yeah. Yeah, which is based off of True story. Kamel's real yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a great movie. I like, hope we cover that one someday, too. Another critique. For Plan A magazine, Chris Jesu Lee said... What kind of twisted fantasy is that where an Asian American writer who wants to write an aspirational semi-autobiographical story feels compelled to make her father white, kill off her Korean mother, and chase after white boys? And that's referring to Jenny Han. And like uh, like the overall article is a little more like uh, layered. It's not like totally attacking Jenny Han. It's like saying I can understand like Asians maybe don't feel they can put themselves at the center of their story without whitening things or something. I thought that was a very interesting critique. But yeah, the, the dead mother is an interesting um, problem we also have going on here. Why is the dad not dead? Why is the mother the one who has to die? Or why isn't the dad Asian? Or why isn't the dad Asian? Yeah, another point. Because you know, I mean, it, him being white doesn't like serve any purpose. Like the fact that they are mixed race does not come up. Yeah, I think the only like the only sense it comes up, it comes up a little bit in the second and third as kind of like the dad feeling angsty because he doesn't want them to lose touch with their Korean aspects of their culture, cultural background. That's about it, which I can see that as being a problem, but they don't really super develop John Corbett in this movie beyond just being like a good old dad that kind of hangs out sometimes. Right. And apparently hands up rubbers. (laughs) Yes. And this is just through um, limited experience, but um, any or at least for the majority of mixed race couples that I know where it's like Asian mom and white and uh, white male father, I never see a lot of conversations about the father one caring that much about the kids having that Asian heritage. So good on John Corbett's fictional character, but that's not something I, I generally see. But I, I think they do a disservice to the dead Korean mother because there's almost other than the end of the movie with the song, there's really nothing that you learn about her. Yeah. No, she's a non-entity. Yeah. I mean, Exo Kitty gets to explore that a little bit, which is nice, I think. So the one criticism that I feel like um, I can address, like in terms of like it not being quite accurate is Inku Kong wrote in Slate that about the 16 candles scene, the highly unnecessary scene dedicated to two young Asian Americans proclaiming their love for a movie that mocks their race underscored to me that neither writer Alvarez nor director Susan Johnson 
seems to come from an Asian background. So I just want to be fair to like the director and writer to say that um, I read all three books and um, there's actually a scene in the third to all the boys books that was already written at this point where there's a reenactment of a scene from 16 Candles. So Jenny Han herself actually did seed a 16 Candles reference into her book, um, did seed, I think, some other John Hughes references at times. So I think like it's quite possible Jenny Han approved of this this stuff, which does seem a little weird. I will give it to Inku Kong that it does feel weird, but I think it's also part of Jenny Han's cultural background. Uh, what did like what did you think about this like sixteen candles when they're viewing the scene? I mean, I, I like the asked. fact that they like they like just put it out there. They're like, hey, you can love this movie. Essentially, it's like well, you can love this movie and still understand that at the time that it was made, this was so. This is now super offensive. Yeah, um, I know a lot of Asian Americans who love Sixteen Candles, but they hate that character. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't look at it as offensive that it's in this movie. I mean, they call even Peter calls it out. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that they do call it out. Like that's like, and like that you if you hear from both of them, like, but that's not what this movie's about. This movie's about like how hot the boy is, right? Although to be fair, when Serena and I were talking about Jake Ryan, like once you realize that he's like aiding and abetting date rape, it's like he's like, like whoa, there's a lot of things going on in Sixteen Candles. Yeah, it's a problematic movie, <laughs> but I don't. I know a lot of uh, Asian Americans who can look past that character and still enjoy it. So there's other people who had praise for the film. Vanessa Shea um, wrote in DaysDigital.com saying. For once in Laura Jean, I could see myself as the Molly Ringwald in a teen film, no longer the sidekick or the best friend who's really good at maths, or worse, the one unnecessarily played by Scarlett Johansson. At the same time in the film, no unnecessary fanfare is made of Laura Jean's heritage, unlike Long Duck Dong, whose Asianness is literally announced with a gong sound at every mention of his name. Laura Jean's Asianness is refreshingly not her defining feature. So she she found that meaningful to her. And she apparently is also a hyphenate. Um, she is a British Taiwanese, I believe. Um, she said, though I could look to Asian dramas to find the characters that looked like me, the social constructs I found myself in and related to being raised in the West were vastly different. So I thought that was, um, it was nice to like hear that some people felt very represented by this. And like, as a person who's white, you know, my whole life I've grown up seeing you know characters who look like me in movies and like maybe as a woman they're not always like the best representations of women that's another issue but there were women characters that i could respond to like baby and like dirty dancing like was like somebody i could like i looked kind of like her and i could identify with her and so you you have to remember that like this is not everyone's experience and that's why we're trying to get more representation in hollywood yeah exactly so what are you guys thoughts then on what would you like to see in an ideal cinematic and especially for Ryan, like what would you like to see, you know, in an ideal cinematic environment for representation? Like what do you think Hollywood should be looking to do and looking to produce? Oh, that's a big question. I know. I know it's um, a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, well, what I guess I'll kind of talk about this movie and kind of how I what I would have liked to see more in this movie or changed in this movie. Um, you know, like earlier I mentioned, if there were just some things around the house that might have shown a little bit of that Asian Americanness, you know, whether, whether it just be like a Hello Kitty pillow on the couch or something, just to show that, you know, maybe their mom 
left them or they, they had something as a kid from their mom um, or maybe even just like while eating, maybe kitty could be like fumbling with some chopsticks, trying to eat with chopsticks. Mm. Uh, so just something, just small little things. Like it doesn't have to be their entire identity, but um, just a little bit of color here and there would have been nice. Um, I know that there was some criticism about how there is no Asian male uh, kind of in in the mix for for uh, Lara Jean in this first movie. Um, I think it's kind of a lose lose situation with this story. Yeah, like if she is, if she is going to end up with Peter Kavinsky um, to make uh, either Lucas or to make Josh. Asian, I think, would have gotten the same criticism. Obviously, if um, yeah, I mean, maybe the Asian, maybe not. If the Josh. Asian male was l- maybe not because because that's still her sister's boyfriend. But I know exactly what you're talking about. If he loses out to the white right. guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So there, you know. So I don't know if there is a way that you could solve that without her ending up with the Asian guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously, if you had cast an Asian person as Lucas, who uh, you know comes out as as gay immediately then then there's the issue of you know uh, the um, the emasculated asian man again so interesting yeah um so it's it's a little bit tricky but um so i don't i didn't have as much of a problem with that but you know her not having any asian friends like sybil mentioned like you know even if it was just like someone who sat with them that didn't have that many lines <laughs> would have been nice why isn't um, the kid from camp? Why isn't the kid from camp Asian? That's true. That's true. Like you could have easily just a kid from camp Asian because like the letter never makes it to him. That's so true. That's true. They do actually bring in um, an Asian male regular friend in the group in the second or third movie. I can't remember which one, but yeah, I wonder if it was in response to some of this criticism too. And they're like, oh shit, we, we could have done better here. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but right, yeah. those are all really good points, and they're like, I love the idea of just like the interspersing, like the look peppering of some, you know, just like cultural things in their life. So, what do you guys think about the future for the teen movie and representation? Like, what do you think we should be seeing more of? That is for not for me to say. That's the thing. That, that's the thing. Like, this is not for me to say. I mean, you can say it in, from certain perspectives. I mean, like, I would, I think, like, there, I would like to see more writer directors like um, i'm going to mention one in my um, double feature recommendations more writer directors who are asian or who are black or from different backgrounds right because that's like bringing a whole vision to the project so i feel like that's a lot of the solution that we need well i think we i think hollywood is slowly getting there that it's taking you know that you're pulling it it's no like so i know theater really well like theater now is incredibly diverse it's very very diverse and it took hamilton to do that but I think that now that we had everything everywhere all at once, you have and you've had like you know crazy rich a- Asians, it is opening the doorway to have more of this. Yeah, right. Uh, I also wanted to add. I, I think um, the story, like a biracial sort of romance, I think that sort of story hasn't been really developed in Hollywood, and it's a story that needs to be told. I think there are a lot of biracial kids out there who kind of feel like they're caught between like two different cultures. And I think there's a lot of really fertile material to, to uh, make stories out of, and no one has really done that. Yeah. All right. So we're going to now begin the spoiler section of the podcast. So if for some reason you have not seen to all the boys I've loved before, and you don't want to be spoiled, go on over to Netflix and watch it. I wish I could tell you to go to the library, but you can't because Netflix won't let you. So there you go. 
All right. So back to Laura Jean and Peter. They are now at the ski trip. Uh, once again, it's a notorious trip at the school, known for people losing their virginity on this trip. My school did not have a trip like this. That's all I got to say. No, me neither. You have to have, I think, really rich school. I don't know if I went to a really rich school, but I feel like we had something similar. I didn't. I never went on this trip, but I remember some sort of ski trip with a bunch of people bringing alcohol on the bus and stuff. Really? Is this a real thing? Where did you grow up? Well, this is after I moved to San Diego. Okay. I grew up in San Diego and we didn't have that. So you guys didn't go to the same school. I'm just going to check because that would be funny. I went to West Hills. I went to a Scripps Ranch. There you go. Scripps is fancy though. Fancy. I wasn't fancy. (laughs) It was fancy. (laughs) All right. Inside San Diego things. I will never know. Never know anything about. Yeah, we, we didn't have any cool trips. So like for me, this was like, damn, these people. Anyway. Um, LJ and Peter are both kind of weird with each other right now. Laura Jean thinks Peter's not that into her. So she sits with Chris on the bus. And then when she gets to the ski trip, Peter kind of goes off and skis with the people who know how to ski while Laura Jean does Korean face masks with Lucas and confides in Lucas that she's been fake dating Peter. Not Chris, by the way, once again. Right. This leads to Lucas telling Laura Jean that Peter's probably waiting for her in the hot tub because Peter looks at her a certain way. Uh, Laura Jean goes to the hot tub and they have a brief discussion, but they both realize they like each other. She gets into the hot tub in her nightgown. He says, there's no one like you, Covey. And they have a pretty hot kiss, really. Yeah, it is. Yep. Apparently other people think it's hot, too, because they filmed it and show it. Yeah, we're not quite there yet, but yeah. I know, but like, but yeah. just to show, other people thought it was hot too. Yeah, or they wanted to screw her over. Yeah. So yeah, anything about the ski trip anybody wants to say or this kiss scene in particular? Um, I This kiss scene for me, like I'm like, oh, this is nice. But like, like, what was the choice to not have her have a swimsuit? And like, it's just like, I was like, there's a lot of stuff about this scene that I'm just like, this is just weird. Like, who gets into that pool? They walk out later, and, like, apparently they're just dry and not dripping <laughs> everywhere. Like, I just had a lot of, like, I, qu- I had questions. I had so many questions. Well, I think the nightgown is... The, the nightgown makes it, like, sexy and spontaneous. But to be fair, it's not one of those nightgowns that will, like, show through, and it would be, like, child porn. So it's, like, it's like a respectable nightgown still. But I think the, just the idea that she would get in in the nightgown makes it, like, a little hotter, because she's, like, she's so spontaneously interested in this. Okay. I don't know. I do like the face mask thing, though. I do like that instead of just reading books. Like, that seems like a little bit more of a social thing to do. Yeah. And like, that is like, I guess, some like uh, call to like uh, Korean culture, although they're very popular with many people now, these face masks. Okay, so let's see. The next day after they've kissed in the hot tub, everyone claps when Laura Jean gets on the bus and she feels nervous. Um, then outside of the bus, Jen tells Laura Jean that Peter slept in her room last night and she presents the scrunchie and says that Peter gave it to her. Um, this leads Laura Jean to break up with Peter because he took her scrunchie that she either cared about a lot or didn't care about at all. And he wants to explain what happened, but she will not listen, which leads me to like the number one rule of a rom-com. You just, you need to listen to someone explain. You'll save yourself a lot of time. So do we think that Jen knew that this was her scrunchie? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it's very clear that she knows that it's the scrunch that it's her scrunchie because the way she takes it out of her hair and the way she's kind of playing with it, like she she knows she's trying to get her attention. 
Yes, this is a manipulative lady, this Jen. Spelled with yeah. a G, by the way, not like me. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we come to Christmas now. Um, it really doesn't tell much about Christmas. It, there's no point in it being Christmas, but it's just showing the passage of time. Um, but Margot comes back to it. So I guess that's the point. She comes back from Scotland and secrets are revealed uh, because Peter comes to talk to Laura Jean and she tells him she's tired of being second best to Jen, which leads to a confrontation in front of the house, which I'm going to play a clip of right now. Just so you know, nothing happened between me and Jen last night. No, what happened was that you went to her room in the first place. Yeah, look, Jen and I dated for a long time. Okay, those feelings aren't just going to go away. I mean, we have history. I'm tired of being second best or fake best. I no, don't know. No, no, no. You do not get it. Okay, last night was... Last night was a mistake. I mean, physical stuff might not be a big deal to you, but to me it is. Who says that it's not a big deal to me? It says every single guy in the bus clapping and praising you like a god, and you're just eating it up. Okay, look, I... Okay, I just leave. Can we just go inside and talk about this? She asked you to leave, buddy. Josh, I'm fine. Go back inside. No, it's all right. It's no, 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 no. Are you serious right now? Wait, this isn't about Jen and, and me at all. No, this is about you and Josh. Are you kidding me? This is the reason that you broke up with me. You're still in love with this Bon Iver wannabe? If Laura Jean broke up with you, it's probably because she's coming to the life-altering revelation that she's too good for you. You're in love with Josh? Morgan, no. Peter, go home. God, you were never second best. All right, thoughts on this scene. I think this scene is very powerful, and I like that everything's exploding, but like it's exploding and like a way that I feel would naturally explode. This doesn't feel like a big misunderstanding or something. This feels like this really could happen just like this. Yeah, I agree with that. That's good. Yeah. Which is why Josh needs to live next door. <laughs> exactly. That is exactly the reason. Otherwise, he's just like a stalker. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm not saying he's not. He kind of looks like it anyways. He's like hanging out way too much. Well, but you can buy that he is overhearing them like yelling at each other and then he comes out and is like, hey, get lost. She doesn't like you. Yeah, this yeah, this is like I said in the book too. He's like way more put it up as a potential romantic interest and he tells Lara Jean that he had a thing for her at one point too. And so it's kind of, and they, I believe they even kiss in the book if I'm not mistaken. So it's like way more of a possibility. Anyway. Yeah, I thought this was a well done scene too. So, and like Israel Buzard is not my thing in this movie, but he is so cute and happy death day. So, Josh, the guy who plays Josh. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So, back in um, the Peter Laura Jean reality, um, she sees the hot tub video, the video of her and Peter kissing in the hot tub online. And in the video, it is insinuated that they are having sex. And she screams and we see the scream reaction from downstairs, which again, calls back 16 candles. It's just like the scene where like Molly Ringwald finds out that her friend's brother paid to see her underwear. And then she screams and you see the kitchen table reaction. So, yep. Another callback basically. Um, The sisters then talk. We find out that Kitty sent the letters. Um, Laura Jean is angry at her for a very small amount of time considering, but Margo's like, Margo's like, if, if I can forgive you for liking my boyfriend, you can forgive Kitty. I don't think it's really the same thing. I don't think Laura yeah, Jean could not help. Not the same thing. Yeah. I don't think Laura Jean can really help liking her boyfriend, Margo. 
Yeah, she didn't make a move on the boyfriend. Yeah. She was just in love with the boyfriend. Yeah. Kitty's the one that made this a thing. So, yeah, but whatever, whatever. The sisters are together again. They're hugging each other, etc. Um, Margo helps Largin get the video taken down from Instagram as child pornography. And we see briefly a lock screen picture on Laura Jean's phone. And it's a picture of her and like uh, Peter cuddling. But apparently this picture was actually a picture of Lana Condor and Noah Centineo on the set, just relaxing between scenes. So they were actually cuddling with each other between scenes. That's so sweet. It is kind of sweet. Okay. And we get this really brief scene now too with the dad, John Corbett and uh, Lana Condor's characters are at the cafe, the same cafe. And he's telling Laura Jean about how him and her mom used to come to the same cafe and the mom would play Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears on the jukebox and start dancing. And then she would play the same song again. So this is kind of our glimpse into um, the mom. I I can't actually remember what this had to do with anything in the movie. What What do you guys think? Do you remember it having resonance? No, I actually, I remember thinking when this happened that I'm like, I wonder if like some other big chunk about her mom was like, because once again, we've had really not that much information about her mom, right? And apparently like now her dad's like, no, I never talk about your mom because I'm sad, which maybe is why the house is stripped of all of her possessions. No. And I was like, and I was like, I wonder if this, there's like, there was like a like bigger section like in the movie or in the book regarding her mom and they just stripped her down. This is the point where I was like, I wonder if it, her mom was a person they were just like, it's too hard to describe her in this movie. So out she goes. Yeah, it just seems so random. And then also the fact that, you know, many years after her death, it's like, oh, yeah, I used to take your mom to this cafe when mm-hmm. we were dating. Mm-hmm. Like, have you never been to this cafe? Yeah, like, yeah. He's like we, never, we never do anything with your mom about your mom or talk about your mom, whatever. Maybe it was in there to have like to attract an actor of the caliber of John Corbett just to have another speech for him or something. I don't know. I don't know either. It's it, like it is. It is a piece that stand stood out as strange to me. You cut this scene, and like this movie would be just as fine. I like having it though. I do like the little, little character piece about her mom liking that song, which is called "Back to an Exo Kitty." Do you remember? Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah, yeah. We're getting to the end of the movie now. Um, Laura Jean at school. Somebody has taken a still image from the sex tape and taped it to her locker. Seems like a lot of effort, really, to go through. Because Jen is crazy. <laughs> Probably. That's why she's not just kind of a bitch. She's just a bitch. <laughs> and Peter finally kind of like uh, gets his shit together and tells everything, everyone that nothing really happened. They were just kissing, blah, blah, blah. Um, he, and he'll kick everybody's ass if they talk about her. And Laura Jean then confronts Jen in the bathroom. And apparently Jen is still pissed off that Laura Jean kissed Peter in a seventh grade game of spin the bottle, which is a very strange villain origin story, really. Get ready. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Josh and Laura Jean have another conversation where she tells him about how she fell for Peter in a real way, um, but that he doesn't really like her. But then Kitty reminds Laura Jean that Peter likes her by showing her all the notes that Peter sent her that Kitty has saved. And yeah. Any comments about this before we get to the very end? Um, I like the fact that like Kitty, who's apparently a huge like busybody, um, has saved all of these little notes. Yeah. Whereas, you know, LJ has not even read them, apparently. Or doesn't didn't, remember reading them, like didn't think right, about they, them. They made, they were no consequence, yeah. you know? I wish Kitty had like other random things, like this is the first yogurt that Josh had in the car <laughs> with us. That's amazing. 
She's like, I have a box of his keepsakes. Are you know what happens? Sisters like other people's boyfriends in this family. Yeah. Oh. Ooh, that'd be a good twist. Yes. I like that. Oh, why wasn't this XO Kitty? Oh well. <laughs> I watched Fight Club. You didn't watch Fight Club. Dude, why wasn't Exo Kitty just like a stalker television series about Kitty pursuing Peter? Oh my god. I would watch that so much. I mean she's just <laughs> she's just like she's just like and then she turns into like a it becomes like a she becomes a um like private investigator. She's like, and now it's just Nancy Drew. Okay, well that's a different twist too. Okay, we've gone in a lot of genres. Okay, we gotta keep going because we're running out of time. Okay. <laughs> All right. But okay, I support we're going. I support this though. I support your show. All right. Okay, um, let's see. So now that Laura Jean has realized that Peter might in fact like her, she drives over to see him. And we have a clip now of this. And she drives over there with a letter that she's written to him because of course. Okay, so here's the end scene. Um, can you turn around? Please. Dear Peter, I need you to know that. I need you to know that I like you, Peter Kavinsky. And not in a fake way. And so I, I guess that's all I came here to say. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't I get to say something? The reason that I went to Jen's room that night was to tell her that it's over. Because... Because I'm in love with you, Lodge. Only... You what? Wait. How do we do this? What do you mean? Well, what do you put into a contract for a real relationship? Nothing. You gotta trust. You gonna break my heart, Covey? I fantasized about falling in love in a field. But I just never thought it'd be the kind where you played lacrosse. If you were here now, I wouldn't mind. All right. What do y'all think of the ending here? I had very, I had, I had like breakfast club vibes. Okay. Why, why is that? I wanted, I wish they'd had more callback to breakfast club, but it had, it was a very breakfast club vibe. Really? Yeah. What about it? Just well, they ended in a field together, right? I guess a field. Yeah. Okay. I do like his line of, are you going to break my heart, Covey? You know, it's, it's, affectionate but it's kind of a joke but it it, i don't know it kind of puts them on equal footing Mm, you know mm -hmm. like he's the jock who gets whatever he wants but he's like are you gonna break my heart yeah yeah that's good also it's kind of a good um uh foreshadowing for the second movie to be honest because that gives laura jean another love love triangle yeah interesting oh the ya love triangles yeah they like them they like i mean that's they happen in real life too. Okay, so and then after this too, we see like um, the John Ambrose McLaren of this movie shows up at the door and Kitty smiles. Like she's so happy that he showed up. Um, they changed actors between the first and the second movie though. So we get a totally different actor for the second movie. 
I actually didn't find this ending to be particularly uh, much. Like, I think maybe it's because they've called up 16 Candles so many times, and that has maybe one of the best uh, teen rom-com endings ever, right? Yeah. It's very iconic imagery and, like, just very, like, um, you know, make a wish. It already came true, right? Like, it's like you can't beat that. So when if you call that up too much in your movie, people are going to be expecting a big show at the end. And it wasn't quite that. So, yeah. Do you think a lot of other people caught all the 16 can of references? Maybe only people generationally who've watched it. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think, I think that like, although like I was like, I appreciate all the 16 candle stuff. I think it would have been great if it ended with 16 candle thing. Like they're sitting over, you know, cake or whatever, but like, would they be sitting in the diner about her mom that she just found out about? Uh, like where, where would they be? What yeah. party would it be for? Like, it'd be hard. I think to like wrap that in. I just feel like, um, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because things are being made for streaming. I don't know. But this ending wasn't in the book, so they could have done anything for the ending. Um, the, the book left it a little bit uncertain what was going to happen with Laura Jean and Peter. Um, they could have done anything, but I feel like there's less attention paid to imagery in a lot of these movies. Maybe the yeah. Breakfast Club thing, maybe you're onto something with that. But I think in the heyday of film, you would have these really strong visual images that went with these endings. Or just, yeah, yeah. anyway. So, so in terms of the soundtrack, um, there wasn't, as far as I could see, an official soundtrack release for To All the Boys I've Loved Before. But both of the sequels have had soundtracks, like physical copies of soundtracks available and for sale. So uh, I feel like they, they began to see that it was an asset for the movie that they could uh, profit from, right? And I feel like a lot of the music in the soundtrack is as good as like John Hughes movies. But I don't feel like the way it's used is like striking enough. Like, I think they have so many songs that like sounds kind of similar and that aren't used for for much. You know what I mean? It's not like with a John Hughes movie where you hear the song and you're like, I know what scene that was in. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as the kids would say, the soundtrack is a vibe. <laughs> yes, that's good. That's a good explanation. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not like one song is taking center stage per se. Um, despite all that, were there songs that stuck out to either of you? Not me, but that's also not usually what I pay attention to very intensely. I remember liking a lot of the music. I'm not familiar with a lot of the artists on this. Yeah, like I like Blood Orange, but I didn't um, identify that right away. Yeah, that was one of the songs that stuck out for me. Like, I'm not like, I'm not familiar with like any of the music except for like the Tears for Fears. Okay. Like, I'm like way out of it when it comes to modern music. But I really did like the song You're Not Good Enough from Blood Orange. Um, I like the song Drunk by Anteros. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I like the song Human Right by The Strike. I like those are all ones that stood out for me. Like, and I don't even know if these bands are popular or like not popular, like no frame of reference. I appreciated that the that the captions told me what songs were playing. <laughs> That's what I appreciated because I was like, oh, like that Blood Orange song. I was like, oh, that one's that one's that one's good. I like that. That's good. Did you then go yeah. and seek it out, like, and, and listen no, to it? Absolutely no. not. Okay. No. Uh, Blood Orange is really good. Yeah, like I have with some of these Netflix movies. I've gone and like found a YouTube playlist that has all of the songs from the movie on it. I did that one to All the Boys Three came out. Actually, I specifically was like, "Oh, the music's in this is really good," and I went and on YouTube and somebody had put a playlist of it up. But apparently, there's also a soundtrack too. Yeah, whoever cool. is the soundtrack supervisor for this movie, and I guess for all of their movies, um, I, I give them props for finding a lot of not super big names. And filling a movie where, you know, it felt like the music was always good, but you didn't know what it was. Yeah. 
Except for the Tears for Fears, of course. Yeah. Yeah, the Tears for Fears ends up sticking out more than the other music, too, because it's used to, like, punctuate a specific emotional moment. And the song is, like, an important part of that moment, which I wonder if they would have benefited from doing that a little more with some of the other songs. I don't know. Just like how the movie kind of helps. Like, you know, I I mentioned the movie has been kind of like this fun ride. It's kind of breezy. Mm -hmm. And I think the music really helps with that. That's true. That's true. And this becomes like, so moving into the next topic really quickly, this becomes even more of a thing in the sequels. Oh my gosh. Like the, there's even more song cues, like, and like it's more prominent. Um, Everything that was like fun and catchy and Instagrammable in this movie, is just like exploded in the sequels, like more baking, more cute dates, more movie references. It's like, ah, it gets to be a little much to be honest. But um, so I definitely prefer the first movie. They changed directors for the second two movies and they also changed writers. Um, And we're not going to go into huge detail on that. Um, I think the sequels are still worth watching, but um, PS, I still love you. The big strength is that the the guy who plays John Ambrose McLaren is really good, maybe too good. And always in Forever, Laura Jean, I think the big strength there is they do this great montage of a trip to Korea, which is alluded to in the book, but not really described. So I found that really fun since I lived in Korea for a while. But um, but they're mostly they're everything that was made this movie like a vibe and like, you know, like a little bit breezy, 10 times breezier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And also the the third book is much more complex. The third movie, like really takes away all the complexity and ties up everything with a bow in a way the book refused to do. So I felt there was a real more of an authenticity to the book. So yeah, that's my thoughts. We're now going to do our double feature recommendation. So we're going to recommend movies that would go well, pair well with To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And um, I'll start out with mine. So my first double feature recommendation is Along for the Ride from 2022, which is another Netflix teen movie. It's also got a rom-com element, but it's also kind of like a coming of age after high school, discovering yourself kind of movie. And the reason I'm recommending it is it is written and directed by Sofia Alvarez, who did the script adaptation for To All the Boys I've Loved Before. It is also based on a YA novel, apparently. And I found it to be an enjoyable movie with an interesting love story and also an interesting family dynamic uh, set in the summertime. So it's just a nice, relaxing film. And then my second double feature recommendation we've actually covered on episode four of Every Rom-Com is The Half of It from 2020, which was written and directed by Alice Wu. And uh, she's a filmmaker who also made the movie Saving Face. And this is a great uh, film. It's like a sort of an adaptation, a modernization of Cyrano de Bergerac, but with like a female Asian lead in kind of the role of Cyrano. It's another teen movie, a teen romance, and it's also a romance of a lesbian romance. So the girl who's interested in another girl and she's helping this guy. She's helping this guy to get her maybe with these letters. And it's got beautiful cinematography. It's very sensitive and the lead character is very interesting and complex. And I really recommend it. I think people would enjoy it. Um, and it's some more needed representation. And it's definitely more filmic than some of the other streaming movies. Like Alice was a proper filmmaker, okay? So it's there's a lot of attention played to visual detail in the movie. All right, and then finally, like my last double feature recommendation is Drive Me Crazy from 1999. And that is because it is my favorite fake dating teen movie of all time. And probably my, just my favorite fake dating movie straight up. I love Melissa Joan Hart and Adrian Grenier in this. I love them both as separate characters and I love their chemistry they have together. 
it's markedly different in that everybody dresses more like real teenagers and the production design is more like a real uh, teen living space. Although their high school is like ridiculously rich. Okay, we'll just say that right there. But I just think it's really does the romance aspect well, um, builds the tension between the two of them so well. And you you owe it to yourself to check out Drive Me Crazy if you've never seen it before. Great teen rom-com. All right, and those are my recommendations. All right, we're going to go to mine. Um, I, of course, put 16 Candles from, from 1984 because, I mean, come on now. You should have watched 16 Candles. Apparently, I should have put Fight Club on here, too, but it's not a rom-com, <laughs> so it felt kind of weird. Um, now we've all said you should go watch Fight Club at the same time. Yes. Uh, my next one is The Duff from 2015, which uh, is, if you've never heard of it, it's based on a, on a YA book as well. It's about a chick who is considered like like the 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 friend that you have around all the time and she's kind of like chunkier and fatter and therefore like she's never gonna get the guy and then the guy's like hey well maybe we should fake date you know and see how that goes um and then of course they you know romance ensues uh it's really good it's a really good book and i felt it's a really good adaptation and isn't the guy in there he was on that uh, amazon show upload or something isn't it that I hot guy? I have no recollection of who it was. I think it's the hot guy who's on the show Upload on Amazon. So I can't remember his name right now, but I'm pretty sure that's the guy. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. He was dreamy. He was dreamy enough. I was okay with it. Um, and then we have XO Kitty, which came out in 2023, which is a TV series. And it apparently, I just discovered, had, is not part of a book. She just wrote it. And I really love it because Kitty, I think, is mischievous. And she still has like all the like... She wants to like get people dating. You also get to meet some of the characters from the other, you know, the other movies or books that, you know, they kind of get talked about. So you catch up with them. But I love that it takes place in Korea because she goes to Korea to, you know, study abroad because she wants to be with her Korean boyfriend. And then, you know, hilarity ensues, which by the way, is also, I think, a fake dating situation. So this family has trouble with fake dating. That's true. Like Kitty's not fake dating, but somebody else is fake dating. You're right. Yeah, she's fake. They, her her boyfriend, who's now maybe her ex boyfriend, is fake dating. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. think of that. That's so true. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed EXO Kitty as well. It was addictive. Like once I started watching it, I think I watched the whole thing in a day. So yeah, yeah it's candy. It's just like bubblegum yeah. candy. You just like consume it. It's fun. Uh, so my recommendations, uh, one is Richard Linklater's 1993 film Days and Confused, which is uh, about the last day of school. And, it, you know, it's got kind of those young love vibes, not necessarily a fake dating, fake relationship vibes, but I thought it would pair well with this movie. I really want Richard Linklater to do a fake dating movie now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he he needs to record it in real time. Yes. Year by year. Yes. <laughs> um, I have Wet Hot American Summer from 2002, the David Wayne film. You know, we, it's it's summer, so I thought of it. I thought it would go well with uh, To All the Boys. They they go on a ski trip. This is summer camp. If I feel like there's a similar sort of vibe there. Okay, that, to um, me, I don't see the connection, but it's okay. I like the movie, and we covered it actually on episode twenty of the podcast. So <laughs> I have an. Aff- I'm just going with, yeah, yeah, yeah. with good, good young people comedy. Yeah, I have an affection for that movie. So yeah, yeah. And then uh, my last one is uh, Wes Anderson's 2012 film Moonrise Kingdom. So it's, it's another, it's another young romance, and uh, 
you know, the kids are a lot smarter than the adults, which I feel like there's a lot of hyper awareness in uh, to all the boys with Kitty and Lara Jean and even Chris shaming Lara Jean's father about being a gynecologist. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about that scene. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> which is the only time you get any backstory of that dude. Otherwise, he's he's a non-entity. Yeah. So if you want some precocious teens, you can also catch them in Moonrise Kingdom. I've been meaning to rewatch that one, actually. So, yeah, it's a good reminder that it's out there. Yeah. And speaking of things being out there, um, Ryan, can you remind our audience once again where they can find your wonderful podcast? Uh, you can go to www.soundtrackyourlife.net. We're on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your, Y-O-U-R, and on Instagram at SoundtrackCast. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show today, Ryan. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, I had a lot, lot of fun. fun. And coming up for every rom-com, we're going to be talking about some other high school movies. We're going to be talking about Alex Strangelove, which is a favorite Netflix teen rom-com of mine. We're going to be talking about Grease, which Sybil hates, but most of the rest of us like. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about hopefully Valley Girl, which will lead us into our L.A. Stories series coming up later in the fall. And thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.